2024 is the year of podcasts, and we want to let you know about a brand new show that is live right now. Join with me to share the good news about the Worthy of Everything podcast. It's just one of the two hosts, Jaja Lasso. Jaja, you've been working on this podcast in the background. Our team has been very excited as we've been preparing for its launch. How does it feel to know that the episodes finally are out there and we're moving forward every single week? It is so exciting and I am just excited to see where God takes it and I have so much hope that it is going to be an incredible blessing to the listeners. Amen, amen. But as I understand it, this is a show tackling the issues of mental health through the lens of the gospel. Can you share just a little bit more about the heart and the intent and who you're really trying to serve through the Worthy of Everything podcast? So I personally was freed from depression and as I've come to understand my freedom from sin and identity in Christ, I start to recognize all these amazing gifts that God has given us. So yeah, just exploring and hearing awesome testimonies about how to walk out true intimacy with a loving father who pursues his kids. Oh man, sounds like a good time. If you want to check out the show, lovereality.org slash podcasts and look for the Worthy of Everything show. The world doesn't think that the gospel can change your life, but we know that it can. And that's why we want you to hear these stories, stories of transformation, stories of freedom, people getting free from sin and healed from sin because of Jesus. This is Death to Life. We started to see that we had put ourselves in the center of the Bible. And it was all about I what I'm going to do here and I'm going to do there. And we became the center of every story. And it's like, wow. But when you start seeing Jesus and you realize that he is the genuine center of every story, you realize where you fit into that. And it definitely isn't in the center. And so my Bible had been always marked up with all the things I was supposed to do. Yo, welcome to the Death Alive podcast. My name is Richard. I'm the host of the Death to Life podcast. And today's episode is with Carolyn Rain. And her husband was last week, Paul. Uh, but guess what? Uh, she has her own story and it is super powerful. And uh, I will say this guilt, condemnation, and shame, people pleasing, uh, legalism, they all rear their heads in this story. But by the power of God, um, freedom comes in. So I'm excited for you to hear this story and the blessing that it is. We're going to jump into it. Without further ado, this is Carolyn. Buckle up, strap in. Love y'all. Appreciate y'all. So when you're thinking about your story, are you thinking like, man, all these years caused this or like any kind of doubt or any kind of you know, whatever you were, have been walking in prior to freedom, or did you think of it as ideas or trauma that caused it? Or is it a combination, do you think? I think it's probably a combination. Um, and yesterday when I was, you know, I started to write some things out last week and I got to a certain point and then I just couldn't seem to get anything else down on paper. And so I left it for a few days and then I was looking at what Paul was doing and and yesterday as I was like, okay, Lord, I've never been a last minute person. I'm always the girl that would study for a test months before. And then the day before, I didn't even look at the books. That's so just how I always have been. So it felt like I'm coming up for a test here. 
and I haven't even opened the books yet. <laughs> What's the test? And the test is Carolyn's life, right? I get how do I talk about it? How do I talk about my story? So I was I, I just said to Paul yesterday that it, we were listening to some Christmas music and the words hit me in a whole new way. And um and that's that will be for the end of this story. But it hit me that this isn't my story. This is his story and pursuing me for 60 years that I didn't even know he was doing. Well, I mean, I did at certain points along the journey, sure. but really that's what this is about. What he's, how he's done that over all these years and the diversions I've taken off here and there and how he's brought that back around. And, you know, here I am at 60, finally understanding the gospel. And it's like, wow. <laughs> and I don't feel angry or ashamed of that. It's just more blown away that finally now here's this truth. Yeah, that's The truth beautiful. that was been there all along. I just, it got hidden behind all kinds of other things. I think that's what we'll talk about here. So where does this start for you? Well, childhood in the UK, I guess. Um, country kid, born in a, lived in a, in a British village, and parents were super... Poor. I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. My dad worked in a factory, in a foundry. And um, so until I was 16, 17, they didn't have a phone in the house. Oh, wow. <laughs> Had to go to the call box down the street. Um, I left home at 18 and my dad had learned to drive when I was 19. And so there was no vehicle. So we had to walk everywhere we went. You said your dad learned to drive when you were 19? I was 19. I don't know how old he was. I haven't figured that out. But anyway, plenty old. Um, And so we literally got public transport wherever we went or walked. And, you know, church was two, I think it was two miles away. And we would walk to church every Sabbath. Wow. And you have his big briefcase with all our Bibles in it and hymnals and everything else. And that's what we did. So from a child, I always had a very simple childlike faith, and I'm really thankful for that. I'm not one of these people who's a big theologian and getting into all complicated stuff. It was more just a simple faith in God, and that has carried through my life, even though there were times when it seemed like it disappeared or choices I made kind of clouded over that faith. But underneath it all, there was this kind of simple childlike faith. I was a real country girl, and, um, you know, introverted, very happy to be alone. Got one sibling, my brother, he's four years older than me. And I think he's pretty introverted too. And so I would, you know, enjoy being outdoors a lot. And I felt like God spoke to my heart through nature, mm-hmm. particularly birds. I was a great bird lover. And there are many times in life when birds have shown up that I really felt God's call to my heart through it. So it was it was that kind of experience growing up. Um, the culture in the UK at that time definitely was less um, emotionally demonstrative of showing love. And so I think it was more, it wasn't that it was a Victorian era, I'm not quite that old, but I think, I think there was more corrective discipline than love demonstrated. Mm-hmm. Although I did have a really good relationship with my father and I knew he loved me and there was no question. Uh, my mom has always struggled to demonstrate love and affection or to understand it. And, you know, as an example of that, as a kid growing up, whenever there were movies that animals died, I would get emotional because I was always very connected to animals. And if my mom saw me, she'd be like, well, don't be silly. What's wrong with you? 
if my dad saw that, in fact, he would know, and he would pull out this white hanky out of his pocket. And as soon as I saw the hanky, I would start to cry because I knew that he was entering into my emotion, which was mm. not that common at that season of, of life, I guess, in, in that culture. Um, I grew up with a lot of fear. Um, but my dad's next to the Bible, Great Controversy, was his textbook. And so we grew up hearing a lot of that, a lot of end time, time of trouble, such as never was, type talk. And um, that left me always feeling like I might never get through that time. And if I make it through that time, I still might not be good enough to receive salvation. And so that, that. So the fear was of God himself then. Not in a respectful way, but if you wouldn't match up to his, what he's asking you to do, then you're in trouble. Well, yeah, it's kind of strange because it was combined with this simple faith that, you know, bad things could happen, but I knew God was taking care of me and I was okay. But underneath all of that was still the, but I might not make it, which I know sounds really wild, but I think it was because it was a lot of performance-based religion. It was a lot about what we did. And also growing up, um, a lot of love was gauged by, you know, what I was doing. If I did good, I was more loved. More loved. If I didn't do good, I was less lovable. Mm-hmm. So a lot of performance based on that in, 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 the, in the home, but, but also within family. We lived in a, in a small village, and our church was the next village over. And most all of the church members were family members. So uncles and aunts and cousins and everything else. And so we saw that kind of culture played out a lot as a family. Um, and I think I just assumed then that if that's how love operated, then that's how God was too. And so not that anybody told me that. I think I just could have put that on it myself. There was a lot of shaming. And not necessarily from my parents, although I think, you know, that using that as a motivation for good behavior, you know, kind of disappoint, you disappoint me, shame on you if you don't type of thing. There was some of that, but especially in school. Now, I went to public school the whole way. There wasn't options for an Adventist school. And so as an Adventist in a public school, the only Adventists are my siblings or my sibling and my cousins. And you would think that, you know, England is supposed to be a Christian country, but there were no other Christians. There was one Jehovah's Witness boy in our school, and that was it. We were the only professing Christians. And so, of course, we came in with all kinds of whack stuff. You know, we can't do sports on Friday afternoon because Sundance coming in. Can't be in the team on Sabbath because it's Sabbath. You know, eat all kinds of weird things because you're vegetarian. And so a lot of shaming by other kids because you felt kind of stupid, basically, because nobody nobody viewed that as a good thing. Right. And then even teachers would also do a lot of shaming at the time. And I, I don't know where this came, but somewhere in all of that, I now realize that it affected me. My brother was very able to shrug it off and just go, you know, that's their problem. I couldn't. And I think it's because I'm a people pleaser a conflict avoider, a peacemaker. And so whenever there was anything, I, I internalized it um, and took it and she couldn't, couldn't just shake it off. It was more, yeah, this is, this is my problem. 
and um, feeling ashamed of yourself because you're so different and stuff like that. So there was just a lot of that rattling around. It wasn't that it was a bad childhood. There was a lot of really good stuff, but there was a lot of that kind of stuff rattling around. Um, and, you know, had its effect. When I was eight years old, some missionaries came from Africa to, in fact, they were a young Adventist couple that were newly Adventists. And then they had gone out to Africa to be missionaries. And they came back and they were sharing the stories of mission life. And the wife was sharing how she'd been delivering babies in the African bush, but regretted that she didn't really know how because she wasn't a midwife. Hmm. And at that point, as an eight-year-old little girl, I got this kind of clear aha moment. It's like, you know, then that's what I want to do. I want to go out into the bush, but I want to know how to be a midwife first. And then I'm going to go out there and that's, that's what I want to do in life. And that's pretty much what I what I chose. I, I went through school doing the things you've got to do, went to nursing school, went to midwifery school, uh, became a registered midwife there in the UK, all with the, with the aim at some point of going out and being a missionary midwife. Wow. <laughs> so that's kind of my childhood years. In my teen years, I was very independent. I think I've always been that way. And it, it's amusing to Paul and I now because we didn't really think of it as we were raising our children, but we raised them to be independent. And our daughter is very independent. <laughs> and when she got to like 18, 19, 20, we were like, man, what did we do here? Because she was already, she got a big dose of it from both of us. And now we've gone and, and added to that. So she was, you know, yeah, well, she can tell, she's told you her story of some of the things that she would do. Um, very independent kind of girl. And whenever I would challenge her on it, she'd say, but mommy, you did way more. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> you know, traveling Europe solo um, and, you know, hiking, backpacking over mountains solo and all that kind of stuff. Wow. That's what I was doing. And she's like, I haven't done crazy stuff like that. So anyway, um, I was very close to my dad. Um, and I was always very fearful that something would happen to him. I would lose him, even from like eight, nine, ten years old. Um, there were, um, it was back in the time when the IRA from Ireland were bombing towns in Britain, and our closest town had gotten bombed. And so, in my father had to travel through that town on his little moped back home from work. And I used to be obsessive about seeing him turn around that corner on his way home that I would see he was safe. And so that was always something underneath, didn't really understand it, but it kind of carried on through life. And I guess it was partly because we were so close that it was like, I just felt like if I lose him, then where am I? Because I wasn't that close to a lot of other people. I, I did have other, some other close friends, but um, I think I was looking, for, my family laughed at this, but I was looking for love in, in a lot of other places. And so from about the age of 12, I started having boyfriends. And I had an awful lot of them. <laughs> From age 12. All right. Which is funny because my hubby, who wasn't raised Adventist, had like one girlfriend before we met. And he was 23 when, I, when we met. And here was me. By the time we met, I'd had dozens. I don't even know. But I think it was that I was somehow looking for acceptance. That culture where, you know, our life was looked down upon. 
because we were different to everybody else in uh-huh. school. I think it was this, there was an acceptance here in spite of that, that I kind of yearned for. And so early on, they were non-Adventist boyfriends, even though I knew that wasn't okay. Right. Um, by the time I was 15, I got baptized. And I think I've had several moments in my life where there have been oh how moments with God. And I think that was one where it's like, okay, I'm getting baptized. I'm going to be a good girl. I'm going to do the right stuff. And I don't know if I was thinking that would earn me something. I'm, I'm sure probably I was because of the culture, but I don't remember that. But I started then having Adrenalist boyfriends um, and got severely heartbroken hearted after one five-year relationship and another two-year relationship. And I began to realize that Adventist wasn't everything. And just because a boy professed a faith didn't mean, doesn't mean he lived it. And I found myself being drawn away from God rather than closer to him through these relationships and ending up getting involved in all kinds of stuff that I wasn't raised to do and I knew was wrong. And I felt very guilty and shamed about it, shameful about it. But I was a people pleaser. And so I was wanting to please these guys. And so I was getting into stuff that I didn't think an Adventist boy would, would want to get you into. But anyway, there I was. And so that was kind of my, my mid to late teens and right into early 20, you know, around 2021, where I'd qualified as a nurse and I was in midwifery school. And qualified there, found myself in the second largest city in the country. I'm a country girl. So it was a very strange environment for me, but that's where I was now working as a midwife. And what city is that? Birmingham. Birmingham. Yeah. Which I don't know if it's the second largest now, but it was then at that time. Right. Next to London, it was the largest city. And um, had this broken relationship now after two years where I'd really made some huge compromises and I felt like I'd completely failed, like I'd completely disappointed God. I really couldn't talk to him because I felt so ashamed and nobody really knew because on the outside I was a good little girl going to church and doing all the right things. But then on the inside, my heart was breaking because of choices that I'd made that I didn't feel like I could ever get back to God from. And yeah, that that that's the kind of shame. Like I was telling my story last weekend, and and it's you didn't think you were this person, and then you're like, oh, I guess I am this person that I didn't think I was, and that's heavy. But then you don't want to be that person because no. the way you've thought about that person growing up, you've probably put like weird like when you're not doing it, somebody else is doing it. You think, Oh, tisk tisk. How could they do something like that? And then if <laughs> yeah. you fall into it, you're just like, what? And then like, you have no place to stand on if you were going to look down at somebody anymore and you understand it, but now you can't even talk about it. Cause you don't want to, I don't know if that's your experience, but that was my experience. Oh, very much. So, I mean, I, I actually really wanted to tell my dad and I would say things sometimes in the hope that he would pick up on something, didn't stack up and he'd start asking questions because I didn't have the courage to just say, Dad, you know, I've been doing this and this. But I think he didn't, I think he was too scared to ask. I think deep down he knew, but he didn't want to ask questions. And so that was just kind of, my, my brother did ask and I did share one time with him. He was the only person I shared with 
And by this point, that relationship had disintegrated and now it was just me. And I, yeah, I felt very far from God. And so... It was your brother able to comfort you or to say... Um, I don't know that we ever talked about it really on a spiritual level at that time. It was just more, he understood, he, he kind of guessed that's what had happened in my life. But, um, you know, he was very caring. Um, but yeah, I don't know that we really had any answers at that point. And I don't remember exactly when this was, um, but I remember feeling so far from God and so alone that, I don't know if I was depressed, but it kind of sort of felt that way. You know, I'm working as a midwife. That's my job. And in a local hospital. And on this particular day, I felt so discouraged that I couldn't even get out of bed. And I stayed, and it was a day off, one of my days off. And I stayed there until like 4.30 in the afternoon because it's like, I've got nothing to get up for. And I've got nobody that I can share this with. This weight was huge. And somehow in all of this, I did finally get out of bed and I got down onto my knees in absolute desperation. And I've always said since that moment that the devil, sometimes he pushes us so hard, we fall to our knees. And at that point, we catch sight of a savior again. Hmm. And that was my experience at that moment. And I poured my heart out to God. I had already asked forgiveness, of course, for all the shameful things that I have been involved in. And now... I was asking again, and um, somebody, an older lady, had given me this little tiny book called Daily Strength for Daily Needs. It wasn't an Adventist book. And I opened it to that day, whatever that day was, I don't remember now. And what I read was just enough of a thread of hope that I wasn't, I hadn't committed the unpardonable sin, I wasn't rejected by God, and that I could pour my heart out and actually come back. And so. Don't you think that this colored a lot of your life moving forward oh yeah so because the answer at the end was it seems like i am forgiven but i just remember thinking i want to teach my kids how to live the right way my parents and this is what i was thinking when i was like 19 and i know that my mom and dad taught me the right way but if i mess up how can i tell my kids that i did it the right way and so when i messed up I think that's the thing that actually kept me from going all the way crazy and doing something that like, um, but it wasn't a, like, it wasn't a right motive in my mind. It was, how can I tell my kids one day? I remember like vividly thinking this when, when later, like, did you have an answer for any of this or was it just like, did you like, no, it was deception. Did you know, or were you just like, I got to try that much harder? Yeah, because, because I didn't. I didn't realize that it was a deception. I didn't realize any of this was a deception until about a year ago, maybe 18 months ago. But I lived under, now I would, I knew that God could forgive and I felt forgiven. But even after years later, meeting, you know, my hubby now and all of that, years for years after, I would still get washed over with guilt and shame. And then I would ask God's forgiveness all over again. And it would kind of, it was almost like a jar and it got topped up for a while, but then it would kind of empty out and I'd have to ask for forgiveness again. And, and that was just how I lived. It wasn't, it wasn't the best experience, but that was just my way of, and then it would be dealt with and then I could carry on. Um, but it was always kind of there in the background. Um, 
But after that moment on my knees, I recommitted my life to God. And I've had several of these moments in my life where it's like I started afresh with God and um, nothing, nothing like what took place about a year ago. But just to say that I've had some of those along the way, little kind of lights along the way. And this was one of those, you know, I recommitted my life to God. I was now having devotions, going to church every Sabbath when I wasn't in the hospital working. And um, one thing I was sure about, I was never going to get married and I was going to be a midwife and that would be my, my life until Jesus came and hopefully somewhere in the mission field. Why weren't you going to get married? Because I felt like, the wrong that I had done, I couldn't, I wasn't good enough to be married to anyone. It wasn't fair on anybody else. I'd made choices that I said, I said I never would. And now that would, that it wasn't right. It was almost like probably my way of doing penance. It's like, okay, so if I just make this, this decision now that no matter what, I won't get married, I won't get into another relationship. They all take me away from God. I don't want to be taken away from God anymore by anybody else. And so that's just how I'm going to do it. And so that's that was my determination. <laughs> I, I think that that's such a a lie that gets into people who have made mistakes that if they don't get married, they believe maybe at first they go in with your mindset, but then when they realize, oh, I am created for intimacy, and they don't realize I'm created for intimacy, they're just like, I do want intimacy. And then they blame God for withholding somebody for them because of their mistakes. Like it's this weird mixture of double mindedness. Like I don't deserve to be married. I made all of these mistakes. Oh, but I'm not married. And so God's punishing me. And so then you get angry. And it's because we don't understand what has happened. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't. <clears throat> but but to make up for that, I was just all out for God. So I was looking for the opportunity where I could go and serve him in the mission field. And that would be my life. And it was my dream anyway. But it was now going to be my sole thing until I died, basically. That was my plan. <laughs> so I started talking with an Adventist midwife who was out in Zambia. And she was older. She was going to be retiring. Um, and we just ch chatted back and forth over a letter. And she would tell me all these amazing stories of her experiences out there. Well, um, it wasn't long afterward that she started asking me, would she be willing to take my place? Because I'm going to be leaving, they need a midwife, and I've been praying for somebody to come out here and take my place. So that whole conversation was starting to happen. And um, also at that time, I went to a church I hadn't been to before. People kept telling me, you've got to go to this church, there's lots of young people. And I'm like, I don't care about meeting young people because they just want to set me up with a guy and I don't want to do the guy thing. So I didn't go. But eventually I did go to this church, sitting in the sound school class. There's this cute guy sitting there and um, something you have to know about Britain is so little that you pretty much know all the Adventist young people there in the whole country, You're, you, you know, because you've gone to camp or whatever, you've met people. So there really isn't anybody new. Um, so now I walk into the Sabbath school class and there's this really cute guy sitting there with his Bible and the teacher starts talking and before the class even gets going, this guy says, well, I don't know what the lesson was about this week, but I didn't get a thing out of it. But here's me now on fire for the Lord, really deeply studying everything. And I wish we knew what the topic was, but we none of, neither of us remembers. But anyway, I just, <laughs> I totally disagree. I thought this lesson was amazing and gave all my reasons why it was such a blessing to me. 
And that was our first interaction. <laughs> You're wrong. That's your first interaction. <laughs> I love it. So then, then, you know, there were youth Bible studies and I would see him. His name was Paul. And I would see him at these Bible studies. And I found out that he had not been raised Christian. And he got baptized about nine months before having gone through a revelation seminar. And I was blown away because the only guys I knew were trying to drag me out of the church, not give up all of that stuff they were dragging me to and actually give it up and come into the church. I was just so blown away by that. What kind of a guy is like that? Because I haven't met one. And so I was very curious and, you know, I would observe him as he would be praying and talking different things in the Bible studies. And I just kept thinking, wow. And then I would say, but God, <laughs> I'm going to be a missionary midwife till I die. So don't be doing this guy thing on me now. And so anyway, long story short, um, he called me up and asked me out on a date. And on that same day, I got my confirmation that I had had um, received a call to go to Zambia, Africa with Adra to be midwife at that missionary hospital in the bush. And so it all happened on that same day. And I know he's told you the story that three weeks later we were engaged. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is about you, Reigns, but you just, you got to get it while the getting's good, I guess. Like, you're just like. Well, and the amazing thing Get is accurate. that my father, who was, was very conservative, very kind of quiet country guy, the day he met Paul, that very next morning, he said, that will be my son-in-law. And I'm like, Daddy, shush. <laughs> and sure enough, by the end of that weekend, we had come to that conclusion too. And I'm like, God, but I thought, and it was as if he was just saying, I know what you thought, but it's okay. And interestingly- I really like your dad. I do just too. from this, these first minutes here, hearing it, he just sounds like a a good old chap. I don't know, like you, you, nineteen learning how to, or when you're probably forty learning how to drive a car, just loving his family. He just sounds like a great dude. Yeah, you would have loved him. Yeah, for sure. Um, the interesting thing is that on that that trip with Paul, the first um, trip to take him home, in which, in which my dad said, Carolyn, you're going to Africa in 10 weeks. Why are you bringing a guy home? And I'm like, Daddy, I don't know. All I know is this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. I don't know either. <laughs> but of course, when he met him, instantly he fell in love with Paul and he realized why this guy was so special. And on the way down to visit my parents, they were two hours or so from where mm-hmm. we live. On the way down there, I felt like, okay, there's this guy. He's come into the church from the world. Who knows what he's experienced out there? But he's assuming that he's coming into the church. And any girl there is pure, never done anything shameful. And so I've had this huge burden. Lord, before I get any more involved with this guy, I need to share my story because he needs to know. So that if he wants to turn the vehicle around and go back, I would understand that. And so I did. I just poured it all out as we drove. And the amazing thing was, he was like, it's fine. It's your past. We've all got one. It's no big deal. And I, I, I couldn't hardly believe that because I lived under this shame. I was for sure that, that, you know, when I would tell anybody that a significant person, that would be that. And um, he was like, yeah, we've all got a past. And then we're moving forward into the future. And I was like, wow, <laughs> what kind of a guy is this? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, three weeks later, yeah, we were engaged. 
Praise the Lord. But I had made my commitment to Africa, and we both felt like I should keep that commitment. And I really wanted to. After all, it was my life dream. And so the plan was we'd get married two years later when I came back from my two-year um, com- commitment that I had made. Okay, this is kind of a fast-forward question. Maybe we can get to it later. But did you feel like still, because of the shame in your life, that you were making things up to your husband later in life? That you Like you owed him something? Like he didn't position you like that? No, he was so free of any condemnation. It was as if, in his mind, I didn't even need to have told him about it. That is so beautiful. It is. It is. I mean, I, 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 I wish I would have lived like that because, like, now I'm telling a little bit of my story with your story. I lived with shame, but then I marry a lady who maybe had done worse things than me. So in my shame, I'm projecting and I may, like, I don't think I ever said it, but I felt entitled that she owed me something. Oh, wow. And that leads to trash, like any oh, yeah. kind of entitlement, any kind of, like, and I didn't, I didn't even know that I was doing this or felt that way because I was, maybe for a man, it's different. Now, obviously, Paul was fine. I felt like, maybe it's just insecurity. I felt like, you know, something was taken from me and yada, yada, yada. And so that leads to just trash. Yeah, I can, I can see how that would be. You're like, that's rough, Richard. Well, that is rough. Terrible story. That is rough. <laughs> Let me interview you now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking your story and all this stuff's coming up in my heart. <laughs> no, I think he wasn't an insecure person, and that probably helped. Praise the Lord. And in his mind, he 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 didn't see it as something to be even talking about. It was just, yeah, okay, that's, you know, I'm sorry that you got so hurt. Um, but no, you're not dirty in God's eyes. And maybe if he'd been in the church all his life, he would have had a different view of it because he would have grown up with a whole different culture. But he didn't. He just he was straight in there on fire for God. And so I guess looked looked at me through the eyes of Christ and didn't see that as an issue or anything at all. So after that, I was like, that was my kind of, you know, moving forward flag from God. Cause in my mind, I'm like, well, first of all, I gotta offload all this and probably that'll be the end of it anyway. And then I'll carry on doing my midwifery thing and that'll be that. And so when when it didn't go down that way, I was like, oh. Okay, God, I guess you're telling me that I don't have to live this single life um, after all that I thought I did. Now, I didn't go further in that and think, maybe I've had a messed up view of God. That's not where I, where I went with that. Of course, now I see that, but I didn't see that then. I just moved forward in, wow, praise the Lord. <laughs> wow. So, went out to Africa. You know, I had never flown before. I was 25. Had we were engaged, but I was very committed to this, and I never ne- never stepped foot in an airplane before. So now to go on Zambia Airlines, and the joke was that we were we'd seen the number of this airline, and we're like, oh, uh, as we came up to the airport, oh, um, I wonder if that's the one I'm going to be on, where there only was one. Hmm. <laughs> Zambia didn't have more. <laughs> Didn't know that. But anyway, so going out there was a a real eye-opener. But when I say I had a really strong faith, though I didn't understand the character of God as I do now, Mm -hmm. but what I did understand, I had a strong faith in his love and his watch care because 
crazy things went down and could have, could have, you know, I could have lost my life multiple times out there. Wow. And um, God watched over me. But for sure, once I got there, I realized I'm a crazy girl. Why am I leaving this cute guy behind who's brand new Adventist, who plenty of other girls are going to see is new on the block. And now I would have left him for two years. <laughs> that was like, oh, that was crazy to do. But anyway, I got real, real sick out there. After a couple of months, I started getting malaria, the type that is the fatal type. Aye, there were aye. people dying all around me of malaria. They would come in from the bush and they were beyond anything you could do for them when they would get into the hospital. Um, and I started getting it. Um, I would have blood tests and it was the falciparum type malaria, which is the real nasty one. Mm-hmm. And none of the other missionaries had had it and they couldn't understand why I did. Um, and I was taking all the stuff you're supposed to take to not get it. And finally, the doctor came up with, you know, you're lovesick. That's why you're getting so sick. So why don't you go home and marry him and bring him back? And I remember making this phone call. The, the, the Adventist hospital was really poor, a very Yucca Adventist hospital. You can Google it. Uh, it's where in the bush and it's a really, I wanted real missionary, not, not some big city now in the midwife. I wanted real, you know, the real deal. <laughs> no power half the time, no phone most of the time. So I had to go to the Catholic mission a few miles away to use their phone to call my fiance and hope of getting a line through to tell him I'm so sick. They want me to come home and get married. What do you think? So anyway, of course he was. Really sad I was so sick, but over the moon that I was coming back and we were going to get married early. So he and his mom basically organized the whole wedding. I didn't really have anything to do with it. By the time I got back trying to get out of the country, it was two weeks before the wedding. Hmm. Um, so anyway, we got married. It was wonderful. And, um, but then we were back out there two weeks later. And I had seen a doctor in London at the tropical diseases place. And he's like, you need to take this stuff. And now you won't get malaria again. Was he right? No. No, No, he wasn't. He wasn't. He was very wrong. Um, So after uh, three more months, I'd had malaria like seven times. My spleen was twice the size it should be. Your spleen shouldn't be palpable when it was. Oh, mercy. With all the broken down blood cells that get destroyed by the malaria. It was the spleen couldn't handle it. And so, um, you know, you gotta get out of there. Yeah. The experience out there was absolutely everything of my life dream and being able to do and to be so close to God because there was nothing else. Often there was no doctor and you were in an emergency situation bringing a baby into the world and all there was was prayer. And you just prayed like crazy and, um, God came through and it was just an amazing, exhilarating experience to feel like you were really doing something. And even though I didn't understand the gospel and I didn't really understand the character of God, I felt like all that trash from years before was so swept away by, I know it sounds terrible, all the good I was never doing. (laughs) You made up for it? I was making up for it. Like, God, you see me out here getting my spleen. Can I be forgiven now? Daggum. So anyway, my hubby, he definitely saved my life in this situation because he had seen me this bubbly, vivacious girl that he'd fallen in love with. And now I was barely functioning, still trying to do my job there, but very, barely functioning. And he finally said, 
this is no, this is not okay. And he, he managed, this is a miracle. He got a phone line out from our hospital to London to that doctor and managed to get a hold of him. He was a Christian guy, this doctor. And he said, we're going to go pray about this over this weekend and we'll tell you what to do on Monday. And we're thinking we might never get another sign phone line out in the next six months. You know, we might not achieve that. Anyway, he did. And he called and he said, no, she's got to get out of there as soon as possible. This is, it's going to kill her if she stays there. And so that was what we had to do. We literally, within a few days, packed up everything, put it in the banana boat and headed out to Lusaka because we were way, way, way out in the bush. Um, and that was my dream kind of broken because, you know, it was my life dream as a child. But later God showed me that, you know, I didn't tell you how long you would go there for. But you mm. did get your dream. Um, but I think I've been paying for it ever since with health, unfortunately. But I don't hold that against God. That's just part of the, the journey. But um, Sorry? Yeah, that God is not putting that on you. No. Sin, no. sin is in the world, you know? No, that's right. So it was disappointing. We came back and now we're like, okay, we're newly married. We've been married for, oh, about eight, nine months, I guess. And um, like, now what do we do? We, we've both of us been, always been very go for it in our own ways. And so, you know, the go for it was the all out be a missionary type go for it. Now it was like, we're back here. So what, what do we do now? And so we started reading different books like Ministry of Healing to try and get my health back. And we said, okay, everything we read in this book that we're not doing, we're going to start doing from this day forward. So we just started to get into the doing stage of life in reforms. Was, was there a mixture of we're doing this to be healthy and also we're doing this for spiritual growth? I think at first it was to be healthy and then somehow it shifted into spiritual growth i think it was like oh well we don't know what to do now we're not missionaries but we can do something here so we'll do this we'll clean our life up we'll whatever we can do and then right in the midst of all of that somebody introduced us to independent adventism and adventist ministries that were coming over from the u.s to the uk and so we were nice we were kind of primed ready to go because here we were we just had to let go of our mission if you will, as missionaries. And now it's like, we're ready for a new mission. And so that became our mission, just living that life, adopting all of those reforms. So, you know, we went from, we went to eating twice a day, uh, don't mix your fruit and veg, no oil, um, no chocolate, of course. Um, you know, got rid of my pants that I was wearing, only skirts, um, my hubby. Get was, rid of those pants. Get rid of those pants. Not, why were you getting rid of the pants? Oh, because a speaker came over and he was talking about, I think it's Deuteronomy um, 22.5 or 5.22, where it talks about men wearing women's clothing, women wearing and it's abomination. And he preached that. And at the time, just understanding our hearts, our, we didn't understand it as, I'm going to do all these things to get my way to heaven. It was just, oh, we didn't know there was a whole lot more to our Christian experience than what we thought. And as we looked around us, you know, there weren't many other people committed to God to go out and be missionaries. Most people were just doing the run-of-the-mill thing, go to church, you know, once a week, and that was about their lot. And we wanted more than that. And we hadn't seen anything that was more than that. And now here were all these preachers coming with, oh, there's this, you could be doing this and doing that and move to the country. And, and 
you know, I hope he stopped wearing a belt on his jeans and wear suspenders and all of this stuff. So we did it all and some on top of that, because in our minds, if a little bit is good, a whole lot more has got to be even holier, right? And somewhere at that point, we began to equate it with, not that we ever said this, but in our minds, it began to equate with, huh, well, if I'm doing this and this, I am one step closer. And then before you know where you go, you start looking down at others that aren't doing that and you judge yourself is one step above. And that's kind of where we were in that whole independent conservative thing. And yeah, holiness is not a level. You're, you're not more set apart for God. You are either set apart for God or you are not set apart for God. And you are set apart for God because of Jesus Christ. Right. Like Jesus Christ is your holiness. If you live in him and he lives in you, you are set apart. Now, because you're set apart, you do not do the things that the pagans do the way you used to live. This is what Paul says. But it's because you are set apart that you don't do those things, not so that you're more set apart. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, partly the culture I grew up in. I mean, when I went to nursing school, just to go back real quickly, when I went to nursing school, um, there was a little Christian um, Bible study group of nurses there. And I was blown away that I was the only Adventist, but I grew up thinking there were no other Christians. That's Anybody else that wasn't Adventist wasn't Christian. And so I had a close girlfriend. We still, even, I was 18 and I'm 16 now and she lives in Canada and we still keep in touch from time to time after all those years. And she was, I don't know what denomination she was, but anyway, she was Christian. And at first I was pretty pretty um, nervous of being being around her because I might get, you know, messed up somehow. I I thought people that weren't Seventh-day Adventists were going, they weren't going to make it. Oh, no, most definitely not. Definitely not. So then going forward, not having understood even at that point, really, not really digesting that that wasn't how it was. Now going into this new realm of of Adventism for us, we threw ourselves into it 100%. You know, and you end up, end up having no friends because, well, they don't eat this way. So I don't, I'm not going to go around their house to eat. And, you know, they don't dress that way. So that's kind of awkward. So I won't hang out with them. And you end up just the two of you. And that's where we were at. And it's like, whoa, this is, this is hard. But you kind of think, well, I'm doing the holy thing. So I guess hard is what I have to have, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> At some point in, in that era, when we were in our first couple of years of marriage, got back from Africa, first couple of years, somebody gave me the book Cold Porter Ministry. And at that time, I had come back from Africa, gone back to school to do the next kind of thing that you would do after being a midwife, kind of in public health, and um, was too sick to do it. So I had to quit. So now I'm sitting at home, not sure what I'm going to do next. And somebody gives me this little book and I start reading it and I'm like, oh, so if you understand the mindset, we just want to be doing for God somehow, some way, whatever. Now I'm reading Cold Porter Ministry. So of course, I came to the conclusion, I need to get out there as a cold porter. And so that's what I did. And I called Paul up at work one day and I said, guess what I just did? And he's like, what did you do? I said, I just sold a great controversy. He's like, oh, you did? <laughs> then none of the two by two or any of that. They hadn't read that. So I'm going solo. And, you know, after a few weeks of this, he's like, 
I don't want to miss out. And so basically, long story short, he gave up his job and we both went full-time cold quarters, um, which in England is you're going to be broke forevermore because, you know, Christianity is not as prevalent as it is over here. And so nobody is as interested as they are over here. And you might think it's rough here, but it's really rough there. And we were not selling the big expensive books that would get us a big income. We were selling the, you know, Steps to Christ for a dollar. Oh, you can't afford a dollar. We'll have it anyway. That was kind of how we, how we were doing it. So we were super, super broke. Um, yeah, amazingly broke. Didn't even know sometimes how we would get home in the vehicle because we had no money for gas to put in the vehicle. But, um, but we were doing for God. So we were doing all our reforms. We're now living in a travel trailer, lived in it for six years whilst we, um, we're doing cold portering and then it got into all these people wanting Bible studies. And we were living in a little town called Lutterworth. Um, John Wycliffe, you might remember, connect Lutterworth to, that's where we lived. Mm-hmm. And, um, the people that lived there wanted Bible studies. And so we ended up with like 13 Bible studies and these just weren't, you know, I come and drop off the lesson and I pick it up next week. This is in the house doing the study for three or four hours with each of these people. Um, and eventually when they got to the Sabbath, all these different families are like, well, we want to, we want to worship on Sabbath. And we're thinking, well, we'll take you, you know, 30 minutes away to the nearest town where there's a church. And they're like, no, 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 we want to worship here in this town. And we're like, whoa. So anyway, long story short, we ended up becoming church planters in that little town. Oh, wow. Out of which a couple of people were baptized. And um, we're doing all of this stuff, doing, doing, doing. I'm feeling pretty good about ourselves. I have to be honest. Um, you know, I know that other people felt pretty good about us. <laughs> so surely God did. Um, yeah, right. And... Um, it was around that time that um, another ministry came over and they were, they took a different shift. It wasn't just don't eat these things, don't wear those things, don't think these things, don't watch that stuff, whatever. It was, it was another spin on it. And that was bringing it into the practical godliness in the home and how that affects your marriage and how you're going to raise your kids and, you know, homeschooling and all the rest of it. We didn't have kids at the time. Um, when we first met this ministry, but we were like, again, we're looking for the next thing because we just want to do to, you know, <laughs> work our way to heaven, I guess. Not yeah, do to be. <laughs> so we, we adopted all of this and we started, you know, looking at how to move to the country and, um, you know, just, just, yeah, we haven't got kids yet, but when we do, this is how we're going to raise them. They'll be on a schedule and all these wonderful things that we'll do. Um, that will do you understand that word being in there um so we're now we've now kind of shifted i guess a step holier from that original group to now adopting these things and right in the thick of all of this my dad got lung cancer Hmm. and as a child i said to you i always had a fear that i would lose him somehow and I think, and I used to think it was because, well, maybe God, you know, I'm too close to him and I'm depending upon him. So you're going to take him out of my life. And when he got lung cancer, I, you know, I was nearly 30 when he got lung cancer. And, um, I had moved on from that crippling fear as a child that something might happen to him. But of course it was still a horrible thought that we might lose him. And, you know, I was 
particularly close. There were there were difficult relationships in my life at that time. Paul was trying to process those and wasn't really able to help me, but I could take it to my dad. And I knew he wouldn't look down on anybody, but he would give me perspective and help me to understand what I was up against and the fact that as a people pleaser, it seemed like I just could never do enough to please in certain relationships. And he really helped me to process that. And so after 18 months, he died of lung cancer. He was 61. Mm. I was 30. And it was a huge loss in multiple ways in my life. Um, I wasn't mad at God. Some people thought I would be mad at God. I was, I knew deep down that God had him, that he had me. I didn't know why he allowed it, but I knew that he didn't play games with us. I knew enough about his character in that way that he wasn't just, you know, messing me around. He, there was a purpose I didn't understand that he was, why he allowed this. Um, but it was, yeah, it was a deep, another dark kind of moment for me as a child, as a, as a young person. Um, right around that point, and I think he was either just before he died or just after. And Paul and I, um, we kind of put on hold our ministry. Paul was actually working some as a contractor as well, just to financially keep us above. And at that point, all the contract work died down. And so we just had the ministry work we were doing. And so we would cram all the Bible studies into the weekend. And then we would go two hours to my parents to help take care of my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of what we did back and forth for six months, basically, toward the end of his life until he passed. Um, and somewhere in right in that end of his life, um, what if he, my dad's favorite books were Steps to Christ? And he'd given me a leather-bound copy. He and my mom had given, given Paul and I a leather-bound copy of Steps to Christ. And I found myself reading there in there again. And I was reading about David in Psalm 51. And um, I don't really know what happened, but both Paul and I had this new revelation of the gospel hmm. that we hadn't seen before. And it was like creating me a clean heart. And we felt like that we prayed the prayer and God had done the deed. And honestly, I don't know what washed that away. I think it was the busyness of life and all that came after, but we lost that. Hmm. And I would every now and then look back and think, we had something. And I believe now it was just a glimmer of the gospel because we've been doing all the stuff we've been doing before, even being a missionary. You know, the, the, the surgeon out there, um, he, he was going off into the bush to give Bible studies to people. And I remember thinking, why would he do that? <laughs> well, why would he, why would he be doing that? He's a surgeon. You know, he's here to do surgeries. I'm the midwife. I'm here to deliver babies. Never even crossed my mind. I was there to share the gospel, hmm. which is kind of wild. But I think we just had little glimpses here and there had no clue really that we were living pretty much devoid of the gospel. Didn't even know that it, the gospel was more what the happy clappy Sunday church churches did. And we've moved on from that, you know? I think that we think that the gospel is all of it. Like when someone says, do you know the gospel? We're like, well, what do you mean? Do we mean like the Sabbath is the seventh day? Or do you mean like the good news that we can live healthy or like, we don't know that the gospel is actually that he has brought us from death to life in Christ and we are now free from sin. We don't think about it. We think that it's all of it. And so if it's all of it, then it's kind of none of it. It's not like a, a one particular thing. Because if I asked you, 
back then. Do you know the gospel? I think, of course, you would say, of course. I would say, oh, yeah, I know that. And then I would get into what I'm doing now. Yeah. And it's almost like, well, yeah, I mean, gospel was, yeah, Jesus died for my sins, right? Okay, now let's move on to making sure I don't mix my fruit and my veg. Um, and, and that's half of the gospel. The other half is that you died with him. And that's well, the think... part that we don't really go into. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. For what were you sure. going to say? You said, I think you're talking oh. about the fruits and veg. I don't know. It, it, it's it's slipped. One thing it'll was, come back. Yeah, if it's meant to, it'll come back. But one thing is, I know for sure to at that point, we had a deep faith. And when you go through any kind of a trial, it strengthens your faith. And losing my dad was a big, big trial. And sure. both Paul and I, he was very close to my dad too. And so it was a big trial. And I think when you go through that kind of a thing, um, your faith is strengthened, but I can honestly say I was no more certain of would I see my dad again. Not because I lacked faith that he would be there. I wasn't sure if I would. And so I think in my mind, I wanted to do even more good, right things so that one day, hopefully, I would see him again and I would make it. But it wasn't like, I know I'll see him. Because right. it was like, as long as I'm faithful, and there was always that kind of question mark over, would I be doing enough that would be viewed as faithful? Hmm. So that was just kind of where that was at. Um, we, as a result of um, this new practical understanding of the gospel, if you will, that we were now gaining in terms of what you do in your life, we were seeking to find a country home. Couldn't find one in England. We were stony broke. Um, houses in England are very expensive. And even more so now, but we ended up through a number of providential leadings moving to the Republic of Ireland, which is the little island straight across, mm-hmm. and bought this little cow shed on two acres. It was a little cottage, a hundred year old cottage, but the cows had lived in it. And it was about 18 inches thick with dried cow poop. And um, by the time we actually purchased it, went, went and looked, found it. By the time we purchased it, I was 20 weeks pregnant with Hannah. Hmm. That was not on the plan. We were going to move there. My health was still recovering from Africa, get our little house with the roses around the door, and then we would probably have our kids. Well, two surprises later, now we have two kids. (laughs) 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 Which we praise the Lord for, because I think if he hadn't, you know, anyway, yeah, these things hadn't changed, we probably would never have come to the conclusion we were holy enough to raise children. Hmm. We'd read child guidance and it's like, wow, how are you meant to do this stuff? We obviously aren't good enough for that yet. And so I don't think we ever would have come to that conclusion. So I think God kind of overrode what had been working well for eight years so that actually we ended Seems up like he's this. overriding a lot of stuff in your life. You're like, never going to get married, never going to have kids. <laughs> or and he's just like, never anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, nah, I got you. I know I love God for that. It's like, okay, I get it. Over now and then you're going to override and that's, that's all good with me. So we moved to Ireland to this little cottage. People thought we were absolutely crazy. There were a lot of people that didn't know what to do with us back there in the UK. And when we moved, and we didn't show many people the pictures because they were awful of this little house inside. Um, Most people thought we were nuts. But the amazing thing was I'd struggled with my health ever since Africa. And, um, you know, this is like six years later or so eight years later, actually. And um, my health absolutely boomed. I've never felt so well. And I know pregnancy can do that to ladies, but I think it was 
a lot of it was the stress. There was no stress. I mean, there was the stress of not knowing a single person, having no power, no water, no phone, no, no anything on this two acres, but a cow shed and for, and 20 weeks pregnant and getting there and having to go down the village and find somebody with a hose that we could actually get water until we had a well drilled. And, um, knowing only one Irish farmer whose language was every other word was an F word. Um, but you know, he was a godly man. And if it wasn't for him, I don't know how we would have survived those first few months. Cause if we needed something, he knew somebody and next minute they were there, they were coming to help us with all kinds of stuff. Oh, wow. And then of course, 98% Catholic there. So it was, everybody was in mass on Sunday and all the tractors were lined up outside church. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but it was it was an amazing experience. And during that time, as I said, we had our two babies. We got this beautifully restored cottage. My hubby started a computer business. And then the ministry that we had gotten to know that was sharing a lot of the practical stuff reached out and asked if we would like to come to America and for Paul to be their general manager. Mm-hmm. And at the time, initially, I was not impressed because I thought this was my dream home till Jesus came. And I'm now living the dream in this beautiful little cottage that's all been restored. And I've got two precious little children and we've got a you know great little life going on. And I never thought that God was going to ask us to leave it. But something, I don't know if I've even put this anywhere, but something that I've experienced over the years then and several times since is that when your heart is one way, and you aren't wanting to move forward in a way that God's asking, if you ask him, he will change it. Hmm. And I have experienced that miracle multiple times over, and it was there and then in that situation. I'm like, God, I don't want to leave this. This is my dream. I don't want to go there. But he changed my heart. And by the time we got to leaving, my hubby was like, huh, we're doing the right thing. And I'm like, I am full bore. I'm like, it was a complete miraculous turnaround in my heart. And I've seen it multiple times since then. So I know that he he's well able to do that. And he did that in that situation. And so, um, you know, we moved in the year 2000, the, the beginning of the year, February time in the year 2000, we moved over here to Montana. And it was a huge privilege. I mean, a wonderful place to live, great place to raise your children. And, you know, great opportunity being involved in ministry. We were so sure that this is where God had put us. I'm, I'm sure he did lead us here in that way. Um, you know, as you become involved in ministry, of course, there's even more do's and don'ts. And that was part of our life now. And our life was in, we described it as the goldfish bowl. So here you are in family ministry. At first, it was just Paul. I was back home raising the children and... um doing some of the behind the scenes, you know, putting CD cases together and, you know, all that kind of stuff that they would take out on the road when the other families would go. And, you know, several families came and went. And I'm saying that so that there's a lot of people who know I'm not naming names. I have no intentions of doing anything to hurt anyone. But saying families came and went means people don't have to nail any particular family in their minds. But anyway, um, eventually around about 2003 or four. Um, we were asked to speak and travel with the ministry. And that I'm a very introverted person, so that was very much not my normal thing to do. Right. Um, but God had put it on my heart that, that we were going to get asked that question months before it happened. And I remember saying to God, I don't want to do that. And he said, but I'm going to be asking you to do that. 
And I said, okay, then if I'm going to do that, I need to share something that nobody else is sharing because why would I come out and say all the same stuff as everybody else? What, what would be the point of duplicating it all? And so here we were, and I still remember sitting there when we were asked um, by some of the ministry families, would we share our testimony? And I instantly had this ha-ha moment from God. It's like, well, nobody else can share your testimony. Only you can do that. And I said to God, only if it's something that nobody else is going to be sharing. And I'm like, okay, I got it. So that was how it started. And then it kind of carried on from there. By the time our kids were four and six, they were one and three when we moved over here. By the time they were four and six, they were coming along and, and speaking in the pulpit in certain messages with us, which they did all the way until they both left home when they were in their late teens. Um, so they had a real experience. And of course, it's quite an experience with a four and six-year-old in the pulpit. You do not know what they're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite my parents are great you're sitting there like hold on <laughs> so then there were times when it's like now whatever you do don't say this and you know one of them would be like oh i thought you said whatever i do make sure i say this <laughs> it's all good <laughs> very humbling <laughs> but in in so i mean the ministry life was a lot of travel but also trying to live the country life and you know when you're living way out in the country because the further out you are the holier it gets. Um, and you live way out, you're putting your own wood, you got your wood stove, you've, you know, you're canning all your fruits and your veggies. Of course, you got your garden, you're homeschooling and traveling all these times in ministry. It was an awful lot. Um, and I didn't realize how much it was taking out of me, but it was. Yeah. Um, and because of my people pleaser, conflict avoider, personality or whether that was my personality or whether that's just what I adopted through all of those years of shame and just trying to cope with it. But what would end up happening is inevitably there would be misunderstandings and I would smooth it over and say, no, 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 I meant this instead of that. And I would just, you know, and then everybody would be happy and we'd go along. But I was carrying that weight. I didn't realize how much it was pressing down on my shoulders. Not that God put it there. But it was what I was picking up and thinking I had to carry at that time. Right. So a lot of that season, these kind of things were going on. And a lot of, a lot of the, sh- the shame if we didn't perform right that I felt, I was deflecting onto the children. And so, you know, I would say to them, well, you know, everybody's looking to see whether our family is really living what we preach. And so the way they're going to look, they're not looking at me. They're looking at you. So if you make these different choices, then you're letting the ministry down. And I am so sorry that I did that. And I have apologized multiple times to the children. But I was feeling under so much pressure. That's the pressure I was just putting on down the line, so to speak, on the kids. And Of um, course, I, I used to raise my kids for me and not raise my kids for them. Like, And I always tell the story, like, if they're messing up like it's the children's story and john john's up front and he's a rascal and so he's like he pushes somebody i would discipline him because i was embarrassed that he did that rather Mm -hmm. discipline him for that he needs to learn that he can't do that now it might look the same from the outside but the motive is completely different and one of it is like you've taken it personally and so then your kids end up becoming your idols in some weird way or they're they're the judge they're the determination on who you are and your parents. Right. 
Well, and for us, we put the pressure on our children because, you know, we're, we're up here saying, you know, this is how you're supposed to live as a family. And if that doesn't reflect in their behavior, then it looks like what we're saying isn't legit and right. isn't, it can't be done. And so, you know, you've got to live a certain way and make sure you do a certain thing. Um, and we were just putting that on them. And I know that was a lot of pressure. And it was pressure because I was feeling pressured that our family needed to be looking a certain way so that it was, you know, not shaming the ministry. And so, yeah, sh- a shame was just a word that was all around the place. Not that I ever knew it until about six months ago. God Where revealed that to me. So it's kind of an interesting thing. In that, in that season as well, I just wanted to add that there were times when people would come to us in ministry. Because, you know, I mean, we're, now we're a big deal. Now we're traveling 15 times a year, you know, multiple retreats and church meetings, seminars, and into Europe as well, back to the homeland. Um, we're doing a lot of travel. So you kind of, you can't help it. You're going to end up feeling pretty good about yourself. And every so often, somebody would say to us something along the lines of, have you ever thought about preaching the cross? Or why don't you preach Jesus and him crucified? And I used to be like, what? I mean, what's it? Heaven help us. What's that got to do with it? <laughs> what's that got to do with it? I know that is so awful, but it's like in my mind, I thought, well, we all know about that. We're talking about how to get your kids on a schedule and what to do when they don't do their homeschool. You know, we're talking about the nitty gritties of how you get them to get, do what do their chores and the things they're supposed to do. Um, so yeah, I mean, other people can preach about the cross, but we're doing this, not realizing that if we could have taken a step back and realized there's a whole nother dimension that we are missing out entirely. And, you know, there may be those that will hear this or that will think back to those days and disagree with that. And that's fine. But I can tell you, in our experience at the time, we were like, the gospel? What's that got to do with it? Um, so, you know, I don't want to paint it like it was all bad. I mean, there was a lot of really good times back then. And, um, you know, we did a lot of things as a ministry personal things as well as ministry things. And um, I definitely, even though I'm an introvert and the pulpit isn't where I feel the most comfortable yet, when I've got a burden on my heart, I could be up there and share and feel complete freedom in the Lord to share, which is not who I am. I mean, when it comes to a children's story at church, I don't do those. They're too stressful. Um, But I could stand up and share something that was a real burden on my heart that I had. And so, um, you know, there was definitely a sense of fulfillment in being able to do that. And then a lot of the time was spent, for me at least, um, in what we would call counseling or coaching. You know, moms would come with a difficult child or, or some kind of issue and they would want to just pour their hearts out. Sure. And, um, of course I had still young, young children. So, I found the only way for me to do that at the at the events when we were at retreats and things was to do it late in, in the evening when my children were in bed, and I was because I was, you know, and I and there were there's a lot of things we would change in how we raised our children, but some of the things we wouldn't would be how closely we guarded their hearts during this time because when you've been in ministry that long, you see so many 
wrecked situations where children got involved in the wrong associations and paid very heavily for that Hmm. in their lives. And so we were determined that would not happen for our children. And so I wasn't going to be off counseling with somebody here and my children just let to run, you know, who knows what, with who knows who. Um, So, you know, we would put them to bed and then I would go out in the night basically to these moms who put their children to bed and maybe up until, you know, midnight, whatever. And then four in the morning, I was getting up because I needed to get up in time to whatever presentation I was part of for that day, go over those notes I always did for every presentation as if I was giving it in my mind. And then once I'd done that, get the children out, maybe they had to go over their presentations. And so I was burning the candle at both ends big time and then being really physically drained during the day because I don't know if if you're... If you're aware, but when you're an introvert and you are repeatedly put into an extrovert environment, you either shrivel up because you you just can't handle it and you just kind of sink, or you become what I would call pseudo extroverted. It's just your way to survive it. So you kind of become this lively extroverted talk to everybody person. It's not really who you are. But maybe that's just what I did because of my personality with people pleasing. It's just what I did. And mm. so, but people would be like, you, you know, when we would talk about personality types, they'd be like, you're never an introvert. And I'm like, you don't know me. If you knew me, you would know that I am very much. We did the test. I was 100% on the introvert scale at that time. Mm-hmm. But I could, for the sake of the, God, the, the people, and for God, who I thought was my best way to serve him, I would adopt this way of being when I was with the people because they it was more comfortable for them. Hmm. Me being this kind of awkward, kind of, don't know if I really want you to talk to me person. I would take a deep breath and like, here we go type of thing. But I would suffer for it afterwards. My health would really get hammered as a result of it. And I would come back home and be totally wiped out and just about get back again on track, ready for the next. And we just did this for, you know, so by this point, around about 2010, my health started to really collapse. And um, we didn't know what was going on. We talked to different doctors. I assumed it was the stress I was under. Around that time also, we did a a 26 series um, on 3ABN as a family. And that was very intense. Um, and again, my health would just crash after stuff like that. It was like, I could do it in the moment, but I was drawing off of what we would call vital force. Basically somewhat, something from within was being drained out. Whereas for my hubby, who's extroverted, he was coming back charged. And that's kind of how it is for the extrovert. They get charged by it. We get depleted by it. But if you do that year after year after year, eventually you're going to pay for that. And, you know, I started to, to feel that, um, and so somewhere around 2010, 11, somewhere in there, we realized we were going to have to make some changes. But in our minds, we had left our homeland or Europe, you know, emigrated here for the purpose of this ministry. And we loved it. This was really who we were. If you ask me who I was, my identity, I would say I'm a speaker for this ministry. And that's what I do. And not really understanding that identity had a very different meaning at that time. And so. We didn't see what else we could do. This is what we were here for. We loved it. Everybody loved us, et cetera. So we just carried on. 
And then eventually it got to a point where I really wasn't able to function well, still mm. homeschooling, still doing all the country in the middle of nowhere life. <laughs> and we realized we were going to have to start cutting back on travel. Maybe if we cut out three or four events in a year, maybe that would give me enough bounce back time. Right. I would be okay. By the end of that year of cutting out several events and not, not attending, I said to my husband, it would be less stressful for me to go to all of them because the internal stressors that were going on were worse than what it was doing to my physical body being there. Hmm. Um, the emotional stressors, right, the personal stressors. And so that was the decision that we made. And as I said earlier, I would smooth things over when there are misunderstandings. And some of this, what it was about me, was hard for me to smooth over because, yeah, I needed this downtime. But anyway, that was kind of what I did. But things started, I don't really know, I can't really put a, a year on it, but around, I would say around 2014, something like that, 13, 14, the stress started to get really intense. And our children were old enough that they could pick it up. And they kept saying to us, especially Hannah, mommy, you have got to get out of this. This is killing you. You can't do this. My health had really suffered. I was getting a lot of pneumonia and just a lot of infections. And they kept saying, mommy and daddy, but Hannah would say to me, mommy, you've got to get out of this. You can't keep doing this. And I would say, but what do we do? We came here for this. This is our purpose for being here in this country. And this is our life now. So what else can we do? Mm -hmm. And we love it. You know, apart from the fact of what it does to my health, we love the people and that was our focus, not the inter internal struggles that were going on. Our focus was the people and, and that kept us going. But we kind of got to a breaking point and um, breaking point, don't remember which year it was. Try, I was trying to remember earlier, maybe it was 18. I'm not sure. But um, we had internal meetings within the ministry were getting more and more intense and more and more misunderstandings. And I think trust was being lost. And once you start doing that, it's over, really, to be honest. Not that we understood that at the time, but I was on high alert, miss, smooth it all over and get everybody happy mode. And so that's what I was doing over and over. And it was getting a really intense point. We had this one meeting where there were some very difficult interactions and I didn't sleep at all that night because I was so stressed by it. And one of the things I would do, whether I would write something or say something, sometimes I would send a card that just said, you know, this is not what was meant. This is what was meant. And then everybody would be happy and we'd all carry on our merry little life. And so on this particular occasion, it was the most intense it had ever been. And so um, I didn't sleep all night. I had a terrible headache. We lived a 25-mile round trip from the post office. And I drove on the interstate to out to the post office to get a card so that I could write out and, and cover all the misunderstandings that had gone down the day before mm. and give it to those that needed it. And I don't think I really told my family how bad I felt physically, but I was driving there. And just before I got to um, the little town, you come off the interstate, go over the flyover. And as I was driving over the flyover, one moment I was looking out of the window and I saw, you know, a few ducks. And I was tuning into birds, so I noticed these ducks on this log uh, and a little bit of water. And the next minute, I didn't realize I'd blacked out completely at the wheel. But the next minute, I I come to to find myself on the opposite lane with a semi coming straight at me. 
Mercy. And I just, I don't, I don't know how I got out of his way. I just, I can only assume it was, it was an angel because I was frozen. Just, I didn't know what had just happened. I didn't know how long I had been blacked out, but I was, the stress obviously gotten so intense that I just lost it there. Wow. And so I was very sh- shook, shaken up, as you can imagine. Um, went into town, bought the card, drove all the way home, didn't tell anybody. And then lunchtime, when it came to lunchtime and we were about to have grace over, over lunch, I said to the family, Oh, and there's a thanks we need to have. And when I told them, they about lost it. They were horrified. And they're like, mommy, you could have been killed. And I'm like, and I, I hadn't really realized, you know how it is sometimes when you're in it, you don't yeah. realize, but, um, I did realize then at that point. And so my hubby said, that's it. Okay. And my kids said, you're not driving anymore. <laughs> no more driving. So then, you know, somebody else would drive me to town and, and my hubby said, that's it. We are going to have to seriously cut back now what we do. And this was the beginning. It was right up before GYC. We were literally, we had the meeting. We, the next day we were packing and the day after we were driving out to GYC and I gave the car to, um, those that have been in the meeting there and just before we left. And on the way to GYC, we started talking about what were we going to do to change what was happening for me. And an example of my, my adrenal glands were so burned out and frazzled from all the stress and other health issues we didn't know about at the time. But as we were driving on the interstate and, you know, we would pass a semi and or a semi would come alongside us, I would go like this. I would just... <clears throat> And I couldn't help it. And my, my poor kept saying, what is wrong with you? And I would, my hands would kind of go up into my chest out of like a fear reaction. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not doing it. I, I can't stop it. And we realized that my stress level had gotten to a point where I just couldn't, the slightest thing that would Mercy. have a little bit of stress, I just couldn't take it anymore. And so by the time we got back from that visit, and you know how GYC is, <laughs> get your cold. We were all super sick. Um, and, uh, but we had decided that there were several events we wouldn't be going to, and we would send our kids without us. And they were by this point, I don't know, maybe 14 and 16, 15 and 17, somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. And so they did. They went to the UK to a retreat without us. They went to New York. Hannah rented a car for the first time when she was very 20, I think. And they, they even let her do it. I'm amazed because they went to these places because Paul stayed home with me because my health really declined. I, Well, in, in all of this, we found out that part of the issue had been Lyme disease and we never knew it. Mm. And I had a DNA test that showed it had been there for 20 plus years and we didn't know that's what my body had been up against. Along with, we just thought it was the strength of life. And my, my naturopath said, no, no. She said, there is something else under all of this that's making you so sick. And she then did the test, found out that's what it was. Um, but in this situation, the, the stress had gotten so bad that we didn't understand how this works. But apparently, Lyme disease can take your hearing out. And I started to lose my hearing. Didn't know it. We didn't know what was wrong. I had surgeries to try and find out what was wrong. Eventually, the ENT department said, you've got permanent damage to your hearing. Hmm. it's going to get worse and the only way to survive it will be hearing aids. And so I started wearing hearing aids. And this was now the last year of our time in the ministry. Um, we were now treating the Lyme disease. I I was in a pretty bad way, actually. 
health-wise. Again, I wasn't doing much travel. Um, and I didn't see those we worked with for months and months. And I kept asking my hubby when he would go to the retreats and I did a shower, how's everybody? And he would say, oh, everyone's fine. And I wasn't so sure. And so the last time I've ever actually seen those we worked with, as soon as I the walk through the door, I'm like, oh, no, we're in trouble. I knew if I see in the count, you can't work with somebody for that long and not read the countenance. And I knew that we were in trouble. And um, it wasn't long after that, Hannah left home. And, and I know that Paul has shared, and I'm not going to go into the detail of the story of some of the challenges we had in, in parenting. But, you know, at the time we thought it was particularly our daughter. Um, and I know she and her daddy had some pretty rough time there. And it was rough on me in the middle of that trying to be the people pleaser, trying to smooth everything over and help everybody to understand what was happening. And finally, I said, I can't do this either. Um, super, super stressful. So the day that Hannah left home once and for all, um, it was just a few hours later that we started getting emails that just, we realized there's probably no recovering from this. Hmm. And um they were stressful. There was a lot of stress. I tried not to carry it. Eventually, my hubby said, no, you don't. I don't want you even reading these emails anymore. It was mm. it was more than I could handle. And so um, he kind of took that over. Um, and, you know, long story, better left in the past. Um, but to say that we got to a point where even though we loved what we did, we felt like we were going to have to leave. And so I wrote out my resignation and he was going to hand that in and then later write out his resignation. But there was a meeting in which before he had time to give that, um, we were told that we were being let go. And it was pretty unfortunate. Um, and very saddening to us after all these years of being here for that purpose and working, you know, in that way to have it end that way. Um, was was pretty rough. Um, we didn't. Did it feel like your your identity was stolen? Then did it feel like in some ways? Um, like if you're a speaker for an independent ministry and then you're no longer a speaker for an independent ministry. Yes, I mean it definitely did. I mean it, it in in the immediate time, it was there was a lot of talk going around within those circles, and you know you you tend to think when you're in a circle that this is the the whole world. And you find out that this is just a drop in the bucket of, of the universe. <laughs> so whilst it can seem like everybody is, you know, aware of this situation, really was just a few people in the big picture of, of you know, the global picture. Um, but there was a lot of talk, a lot of misinformation that was being shared, things that were like, wow, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even have known how to conjure up doing that, let alone have actually done that. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of that, and we just felt really a burden. That was God's issue to deal with. The Lord shall fight for us, and we will hold our peace. And so we did. Only if people came to us individually, personally, with specific questions, did we then share what went down as far as we could see how it mm -hmm. went down. But beyond that, we just we just left it alone. And, and just before... um we went our separate ways. It had been agreed that we would, because I couldn't travel so much, you know, I was obviously not going to get my usual salary from that point on. That, that was perfectly as it should be. 
but also that we would get more involved in doing some YouTube, a YouTube branch, if you will, mm-hmm. of the ministry. And so when we were let go and we're like, what do we do now? We both felt like, okay, that was a call we felt on our hearts from God to break out into meeting more people across the globe with this, this understanding of, you know, I was going to say the gospel. It wasn't the gospel gospel, but it was the gospel according to, you know, this. Um, we felt like we should just move forward with that. So we started up a little ministry called The Home Place, and we started putting out videos. At first, it was several times a week. We were putting out videos, not about anything that had gone down, but just continuing on as we would have done, sharing the kinds of things. We had all yeah. kinds of, you know, you can go on there. It's on YouTube. There's the, there's a web, website, Home Place. Um and that's kind of where we put our focus and we carried on doing that. Of course, eventually it got to a point where it wasn't, and we did a couple of seminars as well, uh, retreats, whatever. Um, but it got to a point that we needed more than that to survive financially and it wasn't yeah. going to, going to make it. So my hubby got work, um, which she's, you know, does full time. And so then we were doing this alongside his work. And then I started working as this assistant. And so now we were doing it. It wasn't quite as frequent because we couldn't. There's not as much, much time in the day. And, um, and then COVID hit. And that was interesting on a couple of levels because when COVID hit, everybody's ministry went YouTube. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're like, wow, I guess we kind of got a head start on this because we've been going for a while by then. But then unfortunately, we of course ended up getting COVID. I got it several times over. And it really walloped my health to a point where at this point, I don't remember the last time, maybe it was a year ago that we actually did the last video that we did, but we haven't done any in quite a while. And we're just kind of, it's just kind of on hold right now. Don't know what the Lord's plan is, but um, we know for sure traveling at this time is not, is not on the menu. It's like a lot of healing from the past has got to happen physically. The, the mental and emotional part is, is I think dealt with. Um, we have no malice in our hearts toward anyone. Um, I'm sure if we had our time over, we would have handled some of all of that differently. And even what led up to that probably would have listened to our children and a couple of other people saying, you, you can't carry on with this. You've got to get out. Probably would have done that, but it is what it is. Um, but the secret is that you don't know it until you know it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's really good. Yeah. You know? So as you, as you asked, you know, what did that do to our identity? It was rough because we both felt like, I mean, for my hubby, it was the combination of your identity, but also your identity as a provider. Yeah. And now he's 50 something and no work and done, done the same thing for practically 20 years, 18 years and never worked anything else but that in this country. So now what do we do? And, you know, it wasn't really a temptation. Well, we just have to flee the country and go back to England because this, our kids, they don't know anything else. They were one in three when they got brought to this country. So all of their friends, now their spouses, they're all from here. So in our minds, it was like, you know, this, whatever happens will happen here and we will, we will continue our life here. And so, but yeah, it was, it was rough because, um, you know, our kids flow the nest. So now my mom role had changed. And that's a big deal for any ladies listening. When your kids fly the mess, at first you're like, am I still a parent? Well, yeah, you were a parent and you it just you just do it in a different way. 
Right. So the kids both threw the nest around that time. And now the ministry work is gone. I'm not homeschooling anymore. And I honestly came to a pretty dark time of, I felt useless. Yeah, who are you? You know, I, I, I didn't feel like I had any kind of identity of anything. I was just kind of nothing. And then it was added to by, not necessarily by those that we were working with, but those responses from, by that point, many thousands of people around the world. And the responses to us as a result were pretty sad. And probably there were about five families that actually kept in touch with us and believed that something had not gone right in all of that. Um, what, who was God at this point? It felt like he was just very quiet. Hmm. It felt like he was there and I knew he was there, but when I would cry out to him with, what do I do now? Who am I now? It felt like he wasn't saying anything. Hmm. And I wasn't angry at him for that. I was just confused. Didn't know what my purpose was. Kept trying to figure out what do I do now, which is partly anyway, when you're as, as parents, when you get an empty nest, you feel a bit like, what is my purpose now? Um, so that was natural enough, but it was kind of added to by the fact that the, the whole other purpose was, go- was gone. Um, I think I threw myself into our own little ministry. And of course, I'm still doing lots of phone counseling, email counseling, WhatsApp counseling, all kinds of, you know, I call it counseling, coaching really is what it was, but a lot of that was still happening. So I think. I think probably I transferred my identity over to that. But there was a big question mark in both of our minds. And that was, if that's Christianity, what in the world? If what we were part of and how that rolled out and how the knock-on effect of, you know, being in church with people that we were part of in that time who treated it like nothing had ever happened. And we were just like, where is Jesus in this? And that was just our question. And we didn't ask anybody that question. It was just our question personally. And we would talk, you know, our relationship was, was, had been fine with our son, but, you know, there were some bumps with our daughter. And now things were restoring nicely with our daughters and our daughter. And, you know, we would ask her and she said one day, Molly, you need to watch The Chosen. And I'm like, I do. I'm like, well, I've watched, you know, stories about Jesus' life before. And I, they're okay. They're not amazing, but they're all right. And so I didn't, I don't know that I did straight away. But um, finally, and I don't know when this was, finally, I started watching The Chosen. And I just cried and cried. Because I saw a Jesus that I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. And not just because he was being acted out by this guy and not because every last thing that came out of his mouth was straight out scripture, but because I saw the person, the love of God in a way I'd never seen it before, ever. In all, as you can understand now, through all of those years, the shaming, the doubts, everything else. I, you know, it didn't, being, being let go from that life didn't make us feel less ready to see our maker it it wasn't we already knew that we weren't sure if we were going (laughs) so it didn't make that worse it was just that was just always there in the background still got to try and make sure i'm doing all the right stuff and hopefully i'll be able to make it but this 
somehow watching The Chosen had an effect that was really deep. And I don't know if I started watching it on my own. I think I probably did. And then I got Paul involved in watching it. And then, of course, as it goes on and on, there were just way more deep emotional responses as we saw how Jesus dealt with Nicodemus and his compassion is like, wow, we hadn't, we hadn't realized that was real. It was just words on a page and it never jumped out to our hearts in a real way before. And so there we were not knowing who we are even anymore. And I was scared that we might fall away completely from God because I know people that that has happened to. Um, and that, you know, that would be a really, really sad thing. So, and something just to put, it's just a little bit back, but in, in the, at the time when we had left that ministry, we were now part of doing our own thing. People had always seen us in the pulpit. So they'd always seen us in pulpit clothes. Now we weren't in the pulpit. We're at home doing a YouTube or walking down the street. And now people got to see that there had been a shift in our standards, if you want to call it that. I wasn't wearing just skirts anymore. And that upset a number of people. And I got some pretty hateful communications from people who felt like I would be taking ladies to hell with me. Oh, mercy. By being that influence. <laughs> I mean, Were you wearing pants? Mm -hmm. I, which I hadn't done all those years. And I'm just being very vulnerable. Why? Because I gained weight. And you start wearing skirts, you look like a tent walking down the street. And I just did not, couldn't face myself that way. And so I started wearing pants. And now I'm not in the pulpit. I still wouldn't. But people were seeing me in a way they never thought I was. And we realized that that whole, all of those reforms, the diet, the dress, they're not wearing, you know, a wedding band, all the rest of it. It's kind of like it can be taken to become salvational. And when it gets to that point, you're in big trouble. And there were obviously people that viewed those things as if you aren't doing those, then you're not going to make it to heaven. And if you are a leader or were, and you're seen not doing those things, you have a huge influence on all these other people that you're going to take down with you. So that was kind of sad. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't make me angry. It just made me sad. And, and, and I think as we, we were kind of moving away from what had happened, we just felt sadder about what had transpired. And sadder that we'd had anything to do with influencing people to view God in that way, even though we didn't really know how we viewed God. We just knew that way was not where it was at. That conservative, performance-based Adventism was something we did not want to be a part of anymore. And so we were coming out of that, but didn't really know where we were going, to be honest with you. And didn't know anybody else at that point. But you were open. But we were open. And that's when The Chosen came in. And instead of it it wasn't now we're just into TV and all the rest of it. It was, we were going to the word and realizing it's been saying this all along. That this is the God we serve. This is the Jesus. This is the love that he has for us that we had never seen because it was always about what we did. Love wasn't really relevant. Love was what the happy clappy churches did. And as my brother put it, <laughs> we were part of the frozen chosen. <laughs> you're not a happy clappy. You're a frozen chosen. <laughs> Fix it. Well, that was I don't know where that came from, but it was a term my brother coined, and I thought it was it was really good. It's like yeah, that about that about sums it up. You know, during that um, time of identity crisis and all of that, it was very humbling. Sure, because you know you're no longer the thing that everybody's coming to hear. You're nobody, 
In fact, you're worse than nobody because we went from feeling like we were the thing to we were absolutely trash. <laughs> Mercy. Basically. But then we come to the chosen and then we start falling in love with Jesus all over again because how can you not? Right. You know, when you start and your heart starts to be open to that. And um, it was August of last year. So the chosen was, we started watching the chosen before that, but I just don't remember when. Mm-hmm. But it was August of last year. My mother was turning 90. She lives in England. So I flew out solo to be with her for a week over her 90th birthday. And whilst there, my husband, my, my brother and I had a lot of very interesting conversations. And, and I'll just say, I know my brother's going to listen to this. And I'll just say it straight up. He is streets ahead of us in our spiritual walk. We were the ones thinking we were the holy ones and he, you know, really needs to get his act together because he was all into the gospel. Weirdo. <laughs> Weirdo. And so we started having some beautiful conversations about the gospel. Not that I could have told you that's what it was. I didn't know what it was. All I knew was, or like it's saying to him is, I know what we're leaving behind. I just don't know where we're going. And so yeah. he and I talked a lot on that trip um, about the journey that he'd been on in his wife and the journey that Paul and I were now embracing. Um, and it was extremely helpful. And after that... What's trip, his name? Ian. Praise the Lord for Ian, you know. Shout out to Ian. <laughs> yeah, man. Shout out to Ian. <laughs> um, he, so so as, as I flew home that week, um, after that week, I had a really deep emotional few hours where I cried a lot. Now, when I cry, I don't make a bunch of noise. It just silently trickles down. And that was, that was pretty much the whole flight of realizing that there was something I was missing. Hmm. something big and i started to take notes on my phone of what i was experiencing and just all these bullet point notes and right now you know every now and then i'll show them to my hubby we are so blown away by what god was revealing when i had can you tell me one of them um you don't have to no i can i can i can find it for you it's right here see which one i can pick out for you there was there was a number I mean, the, 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 the overall sentiment was that God loves unconditionally. And I put the very first thing, real love is unconditional. Mm. Um, I had seen a demonstration. And this, there's a dimension of my story I'm not getting into because sure. I, I just don't feel it would be right. That's but fine. I saw unconditional love flowing out of the hearts of my mother's sisters who were present at her 90th birthday. And it was something I hadn't seen for a very long time. And it broke my heart that they were so caring. And that was one of the things I wrote down. Um, You know, this unconditional love that I saw coming out of aunts who I hadn't seen in maybe 30 years. Hmm. Long time long time but just to, and it reminded me of in my childhood that's how they had been because there was some emotional dysfunction in some family members in my childhood that left me void of feeling nurtured yeah but to feel that nurture from them was incredible and so i was writing that down i know this might sound crazy but i wrote down there that we have two little dogs now at once at that time we had one and i just wrote down that lucy my little dog seems to be able to show me God's love in a way that a lot of humans can't. 
She doesn't care whether I have bad hair day. She doesn't care that I've gained weight. She doesn't care. She just loves me anyway and will, will literally love me to the death, so to speak. And I know that those creatures are given to us of God to reveal to us part of who he is. And so this was just what I was writing down. Um, um, I wrote down frozen chosen, not unconditional love. More if you do it the way I think you should. If, uh, if you listen to Jonathan's episode, his first episode, it comes up to this moment where he's just like, God loves me. And that, that idea changes his life. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing for me to say, God loves you, but it's a completely other thing for you to be loved by God, for you right. to receive that love. And it's just like, God loves me. Yeah. Yeah. And that changes the game. And I think at that point, I was half digesting God loves me and half grieving that I hadn't felt that, that love to me always seemed like it came with conditions. Not, not for my husband. I don't want to ever give that. He's been the greatest gift to my life of all time. But from others, some others, it felt like love was, it came with a price tag. And as long as I fit and could pay the bill, I was loved. But if I couldn't, I wasn't. And so I was, I was coming to realize God loves me like that, but I was also grieving. Oh, that's why I haven't seen it because I haven't felt it because I haven't experienced it. And so that's why I was just writing all these things down. Um, finding a new view of God, his love is not based on my performance. That was just another of the things I wrote. Again, really, this was way ahead because we hadn't really ever talked about that, the two of us. But it's, this was just what was kind of gushing out of my heart. Anyway, that's, I can, I can leave it there now with that. But that was, and there's a few other things too. But the basic sentiment was that, that, so we came back, I came back, that was August. Um, we actually moved house. And then, um, at the end of the year, around this time, it was just before Christmas, we went to Arizona. We have a little fifth wheel. We did had a fifth wheel down there and we were going to snowbird it down in Arizona. And by that point, there were so many things kind of buzzing around our heads. And Hannah was telling us little bits of this and little bits of that. And we've been watching the chosen and we decided, you know, we're going to not go to church while we're there. However many weeks, months it is we're there. We're just going to stay home and figure out where do we fit in this grand picture of everything. Because we're not ready to throw the towel in on God. That's clear. So we're not going anywhere, but we need to know where is God and who is God and where do I fit into everything. So we did. We went to Arizona. We were earnestly seeking. My friend calls that going to Arabia. That, that is what we call it. <laughs> Paul and I said, we were, Paul went to Arabia and I went with him. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're coming to the, the beginning of the year now and I'm like okay because of that love revelation if you will as I flew home I said okay God I'm gonna I'm gonna get a new Bible and because my other one had been marked up with all the things that I needed to do and, and, I, and I think this people have said this to you before but we didn't understand it, but we started to see that we had put ourselves in the center of the Bible. Hmm. And it was all about I, what I'm going to do here and I'm going to do there. And we became the center of every story. And it's like, wow. But when you start seeing Jesus, 
and you realize that he is the genuine center of every story, you realize where you fit into that. It definitely isn't in the center. And so my Bible had been always marked up with all the things I was supposed to do. Blue being obedience. It was full of blue. And I decided I'm going to get a new, a new Bible and I'm going to mark it out with two things. Every place that God's love is demonstrated from Genesis through and every place where I get to respond to that love. And I started doing that. And I was blown away by God's love in Genesis. It's like, wow, in creation. I, and I just had never seen it before because I'd never read the Bible like that before. So I'm getting really excited and I'm sharing with Paul. And he's he's getting into um, listening to this guy, I don't even remember his name, some guy on the Book of Romans. And we're comparing notes and sharing back and forth. And don't really know where this is going, but we're just going somewhere, it seems. <laughs> and um Right around that time, it was Passion Conference in um, Atlanta, and Hannah was going to Passion Conference. She was going to go with a friend, but then it didn't work out. So now she's this little girl, it was five foot nothing, is going to Passion Conference solo. And usually she would, you know, if she was driving somewhere, she would put her vehicle in the back of the Walmart parking lot, and that's where she would sleep. And we're like, oh, no. So we, her daddy said, sweetheart, here's the money. Get yourself a hotel so that you've got somewhere to sleep. And, but we want to hear all about passion. So she would, um, she would FaceTime with us while she was there and we were watching all this, all the presentations of passion. And we had, we had appreciated Louis Giglio from years and years ago when Indescribable, um, was, yeah. was out and really just appreciated somehow he touched a chord. And so, you know, I'd listened to him on and off over the years. But now we watched all the Passion Conference um, stuff that was aired on on the TV there. And we're having lots of conversations with Hannah about it all. And this is where it kind of gets crazy. You know, I had always had this view that contemporary Christian music was of the devil. And back in the day when um, Evie and Sandy Paddy was the thing, I had shredded my cassette tape so that nobody else would be influenced but by such heresy. That Sandy Patty was heresy? <laughs> oh, my goodness. What about Steve Green? Was he the Mark of the Beast? Oh, that was before his time. <laughs> like Sandy Patty. So that was the conservative day. I mean, the super duper when we were doing everything, everything. It's Del Delker or nothing at else. Nothing else. Oh, so, so, you know, it was the hymn straight up or nothing else, basically. Wait, hold on. Not even Del Delker? No. Oh, my goodness. Rest in peace, Del Delker. You have a songbird voice. So, so I'd always had that. I mean, I would hear the occasional Christian song around because Hannah liked to listen to it. So when she would visit, she would play some of her stuff. And I'd be like, yeah, kind of looking at it out of the corner of my eye thinking, hmm, don't know about that. Anyway, so... So now we're listening to Passion Conference, and of course, you're going to get the worship as well. And I'm listening to these words, and I'm like, wow, those words are really deep. And I'd never listened to the words before. And, and you know, the song that was last year's big hit from Passion was I witnessed it, and I'm like, I really like that song, and I'm forgetting what I think might be the bad stuff about the music. And I'm just zoning in on the words and I'm like, wow, these words, these words line up with what we're learning. And it was just a, a really, you know, and I would share this with Hannah and she would kind of laugh and she'd say, see, I told you it wasn't terrible. 
And I'm like, yeah, but I didn't understand it because I never listened to the words and now I'm listening to the words. And so, so Have you then, heard the song So Will I by uh, Hillsong United? I'm sure I have. I don't, I don't remember all of them. These but. songs, like the first time I heard that song and actually listened to the lyrics, I was like, these dudes know God. Like, how do they know him? How can they do that? Like, how did they write this if they don't know him? They have to know him. <laughs> We're the only people that know God, right? Like, so who told them? Yeah, well, that was how that was how I felt, and so it was right at that point. So we're talking early January now. She gets back from Passion. She had been somewhere in Berrien when you guys, had, somebody had come out, and so she'd mentioned little bits here and there, but nothing really that mm -hmm. you know big. And anyway, one day she said, "Mommy, I'm on these Bible studies, and I think you'd really like it." Well, we've now gone through a season where there was a rough patch with our daughter. And now this is several years later and we are really connected. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. <laughs> and in my heart, basically with both of my kids, I've, our son as well, I've always felt like whatever they're doing, if I can in good conscience be a part of that, I will, because yeah. I want to be a part of their life. So I don't know anything about what this is all about, but I'm just like, you know, I'm reading my Bible about love and, you know, you put on my phone, my, the, thing on my phone, if you can see that, says love. And Hannah said she got her word for the year and it was believe. And I'm like, you know, mine is mine is love because that's what I was searching for is sure. I want to see God's love. I'm just going to forget the rest and let's just see where God's love is for the, for the time being. And so I get on these love reality Bible studies and um, which seem more like discussions. And of course, Sheila are texting back and forth. So I'm like, whoa, that was interesting. What do you think about this and that? And it was a Which ones were you going to? I don't know. Who knows? Whatever one. I mean, it was, I, there was one at first. It was a Monday. A Monday sometime. I think that was one that was yours. And I don't know who did the Monday one. Maybe that was yours. That is my mon Monday. Okay. And, you know, we're in a fifth wheel. So there's no real way for it just to be me. So I would have it on speaker and Paul would be hearing as he was working. Mm. And then, you know, he would, he wouldn't really say anything. He wasn't, he didn't like it. He was just, you know, that's just what I'm doing yeah. with him. And he, he got that. And so then Hannah and I would chit chat back and forth during it. And then afterward, and now I'm starting to share with her, man, I didn't know there was so much, so much of the love of God in Genesis. And I'm sharing with her different things. And, and she's, you know, then she starts sending podcasts to me. And then I'm like, what? Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What podcast did she send? Well, I think it was yours. I remember we were at the trailer park. There's a laundromat there, and I would put in my earbuds because I'm an introvert. I don't right. want to talk to people in the laundromat. Right. So I put in my AirPods, and I was listening to you and whoever was talking with you about your story of um, the school you were at and then having to leave. Oh, that. Okay. But whatever that was, that's what I was listening to. That's my second to. episode on season two of the Death Alive podcast. Oh, okay. Well, that's what I was listening to. And I remember thinking, oh, that was pretty interesting. Oh, yeah, he went through some similar stuff to we did. That's interesting. And and then there would be these terminologies that I'd be like, what? Woo. Woo. What, what was the main ones that you were, were tripping you up? Oh, it, was, it would be uh, things like when so and so got freedom. And I'm like, ooh, that's, that's, that's dodgy yeah, right but... there. Somebody getting freedom, or when did you get saved? Just like what? <laughs> Who? <laughs> mm -hmm. So that kind of those kind of words were a little paralyzing to me. I wasn't throwing it out. I was just like, huh. So I, 
I went from now I'm now I'm pretty much on every Bible study. Okay. So whenever there's a Bible study, I get on. If Hannah's on there, I'll stay on there and then we'll chit chat some more. And, you know, and then things started to happen that, and this was January. And there had been some significant relationships that I had been very challenged by, very hurt by, and really didn't know how to function through. And Helen knew about this and she understood and she, she shared there's, there's narcissism in this and there's different things going on. And I didn't understand that. I started researching that. I'm like, Oh my word, I see that. Um, but I was praying, obviously, as I've been doing for a long time, but it's not really experiencing any change in my heart. I knew it wasn't about the person or the people. I could pray for them, but it was here that needed to change, how I responded to that. And the more I was reading about God's love, the more I felt love and compassion for those people. And Hannah said to me one day, Mommy, you're, you're free from that. Hmm. And I'm like, you know, I think I am. It doesn't bother me anymore. It should be bothering me. You can see X, Y, and Z, and she could see. And she's like, I know. Is that, does that not bother you? I said, no, it doesn't. I don't, it's as if that's not, it's not relevant anymore. It's, it's God's bigger than all of that. And I don't identify as, as, as lacking in all of that. And she said, mommy, that is so amazing. That is the gospel working in your life. And, I'm, and from that point on, I began to see more and more things happening in my heart that I had never experienced before. And it wasn't because I was trying really, really hard to do it. It was just, it seemed like the more I read about the love of Jesus, the more I experienced it in my heart. And that had never happened to me before. And so, so now another big one was coming to understand that I didn't need to believe lies. Now I'm sure a lot of these things were just snatches here and there on Bible studies. So now pretty much I was on every Bible study. I was working my day around it, my work around it, so that I would be there whenever I could and just kind of grabbing bits here and there. And now Paul is listening to some of the Bible studies and we're talking about all these different things and just... Did you hear Hannah's testimony when she testified at uh, at Andrews? Yeah. So I, I can literally tell you, I was at the sink, I had my iPad with my AirPods in because my hubby was on work call and I'm doing dishes and I'm watching her testimony. I was at my house with my AirPods in, with my phone, <laughs> watching her testimony. We were at the same <laughs> But so, so now as we're reading more and realizing more, we're coming to experience that we had been living under a lot of lies. Yeah. So the lies of this relationship situation that I was, you know, feeling hurt by were that I wasn't good enough, that I wouldn't be loved enough, that I would be put on, put on the back burner. I would be sidestepped as a result of somebody else's actions and nothing has changed, but I realized I didn't have to let that define me anymore. Mm. I could say, God, it's in your hands, but you love me. I'm your child. And that's what I'm going with. Okay, I want to I wanna take a real quick break from this episode. And I'm going to bring up my brother from Orlando, Will Murphy. What's up? What's up, Will? What's up, Mayor? What's good with you? <laughs> the Mayor. Uh, Will, man, how long have you been rocking with the, the gospel as it is uh, preached in um, the Bible? Yeah, man, 2019. Since uh, November 2019. 
is where the Lord found me in my bedroom and changed my entire life, where I heard his voice so clear in my head that I uh, I couldn't turn back. So, um, yeah, since 2019. Man, and uh, I'd imagine the gospel's changed your life so much that you have not one, but two episodes on the Death to Life podcast. Is that true? I, I'm assuming so. I mean, I've listened to uh, both of them back recently uh, because my wife and I just had our anniversary uh, back in October. But yeah, man, it was just a testimony of what God's goodness in his life has been for us. So yeah, man, absolutely. You still, you still like those episodes? They still they still hit? Uh, they, they, they hit. They hit. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> so uh, you believe in this so much that you have uh, donated finances, time. Why is it so important to you that you would donate of your your hard-earned Skrilla to keep this movement going? Yeah, for sure, man. My wife and I, we've been thoroughly blessed by the gospel. It's changed our lives fundamentally, um, how we see each other, how we see others, um, how the gospel just, um, how God sees us. And so for us, it is important that we give because we want the gospel to go forth. We want people to hear the freedom from sin. We want them to hear the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. And so we believe one of the ways to do that is by donating, by giving some of our finances uh, to help further the gospel. So, um, yeah, that's that's short answer, but that's that's what we fundamentally believe. Yeah, and if you're listening and you want to partner with us so that we can keep this thing going in 2024, you can go to lovereality.org slash give, partner with us, we're dedicated to preaching this message everywhere we go, and you partnering with us uh, will help us do that and continue to do that in 2024. So that's lovereality.org slash give. Thanks, Will. Appreciate you, Doc. Absolutely, Mayor. Yes, sir. Let's get back to the podcast episode. To be honest, in your mind as, as a super conservative, all your life Adventist, there was a lot of wrestling going on in my mind. It's sure. like, well, if you do these things or you don't do those things, remember, you always knew that you would be lost if you didn't comply with certain things. Or if you, you know, I don't know how to be specific about it because I, I can just not think of a specific example, but um, just the doing of things, the performance of things, that if you aren't doing those, then are you really even a Christian? And the judgments that I had put upon other people over all those years, not even necessarily knowingly doing, but just subconsciously, well, I'm doing this and you're not, so I guess I'm better, you're worse. Those judgments now started coming back into my own mind of people from that group, if you were putting onto me now. And I could see myself where I saw other people before and so it was a real battle with, yeah, but, but, you know, there was a lot of fear of this, these, this choice might mean I'll, I'll be lost. And then I would come back around to, but the gospel, Jesus loves, he's done it all already. I just need to have faith to believe that. And so there was definitely a time of wrestling when one voice was stronger, but I would honestly say that that voice is pretty quiet and his voice is the stronger in my life today, but I don't do you know. Still, you still say, struggle with something like, if I do this, I'll be lost. Not occasionally that thought will come through. Cause he says he'll never cast you out. Right. Right. But when you, when you've been in that culture all your life. Sure. And it, it's just, it's just what you've believed 
about how the end things are all going to go down and where you're going to have to be and positioned to all of that, where you position yourself. It's like, whoa, but somehow that doesn't seem like the God that I'm now learning about right now. And, and so I think I say that because I think other people that are going to come to the gospel from where we have been are going to end up with that same struggle to a greater or lesser degree of what the devil, and it's the lies of the devil. And that's really what I was getting to is listening to those lies that is mm. about what you're doing, how many hours you spend in your quiet time and, you know, what you choose to do and what you choose to wear, and what you choose to eat. And it's all about those things. And if you do any of those things and you're lesser than, you're not going to make it. And that's those lies that he tells. And once you, once you realize their lies, and for me, it was realizing temptations really when you boil a temptation all the way down, it's a lie. And for Eve, it was eat this and you'll become something. And, you know, all the way through, as you look through the Bible, it's, it's lies that make you feel like I have to do this. Maybe you don't have to do this. And so realizing that, that that is what he wants to speak over you instead of allowing God's voice to speak to your heart has been a huge revelation to both of us. Um, from the outside in, does it look like <clears throat> your life looks different or less holy? If I was just watching you in a vacuum and seeing how you move around, are you doing things now that you didn't used to do? Or would you say that it looks pretty similar? No, I would say, I would say that for Paul, it looks pretty similar. But for a girl, dress and adornment, makeup, the whole nine yards is, you know, viewed as um, a sinful thing or can be, and I'm freed from that bondage of that view. I was actually before all of this, you know, I, I, when we were first married, I had an engaged ring rather, when we got engaged, had a wedding ring. When we came back from Africa and got into that super conservative mindset, I got rid of those and wore them a little bit in Ireland because people didn't think we were married. And that was like great witness we're going to be having in our neighborhoods. They think we're just kind of, you know, shacking up, <laughs> shacking up. Then when we moved to Montana, got took that off, never wore it again until two years ago. And we were we were coming out of that mindset, not understanding where we were going, but coming out of there. And I just said to Paul one day, you know, there's a lot of things that went down back then when we first became super conservative in our first year of marriage that I feel like standing back now, we were kind of cheated out of some of the joys of life that you would normally have. And one of which was to feel proud to wear your husband's wedding and engagement ring on your finger. And that was a big deal in, in the culture in England. You know, pretty much everybody that's married wears that. And I said to him, I feel kind of cheated somehow out of that by that culture. And he said, well, we can change that. And so he bought me um, an eternity ring and then we kind of added to that. <laughs> And But I know that there are some people today who I know from my past walk who would think that is extremely sinful or that I wear some makeup um, or that I had a, a highlights in my hair for our daughter's wedding. That would be viewed as sinful for some by some people. And so probably I viewed it that way myself back then. And so sometimes those thoughts come in, but honestly... The more you, I, I think the solution is not trying to look to, I'm just going to grit my teeth and not let that affect me. The more you look at the beautiful Jesus, that stuff just 
fades into insignificance, doesn't mean anything anymore. And so I would say less and less that stuff touches on my life, but they're definitely at the beginning, it was harder. So you're watching all this stuff, you're hearing, you're going to the Bible studies. Uh, is, did you, what, then you guys were on wave one. I remember seeing you there this summer. Was that this yeah. summer? How yeah. did that hit you? Was that like the first time going through it or had you watched a lot of stuff like actually watching wave one online or? My hubby was watching some of um, the YouTubes with Jonathan. Oh, I would say we, we went to Arizona in late December, just before Christmas. We came back the end of February. Mm-hmm. So we were there a couple of months and somewhere in that time, my hubby was watching um, some of that stuff. And I couldn't really wrap my mind around it. I was more in the word, just trying to say, okay, God, you know, just reveal yourself to my heart. And he was doing it in multiple ways. As I said, freedom from all different sorts of things, identities that I had carried that I didn't feel were mine anymore and not feeling the same lack that I felt for so long in my heart. Something that is this kind of funny now, but at the time, one of the t- when I was watching Passion, they would talk about worship, and they were having the worship songs. I honestly did not understand that meant they were singing those songs in worship. I thought it was just like you know you can you go to church, you sing songs, but because I'd never really seen him sang in a deep, deep heart moving worshipful way i did not connect the two and then one day i had this moment where i'm like you mean they worship and then they have the message and then they worship and i just thought they were just doing a few songs before and after you know i thought that was it and hannah was laughing because she's like mommy you didn't get that's what they're called worship songs i'm like nope didn't get that (laughs) what (laughs) that's funny that's crazy You know, the the people that wrote those hymns, they were also on one. Like, if you read the lyrics and you're just like, these are crazy and they're beautiful. But you were just like, oh, I like this melody and I like this melody and uh, praise God for whom I was. I was good with the hymns a little bit sometimes. There were times in life where the words meant more than others. But never like you just went there and like, okay, now these are, this is going to be this really meaningful, deep, heart-stirring moment. So then I started listening to Chris Tomlin and all these different, you know, artists and listening to their words. And I just started to cry an awful lot. And I still do because those words were coming right into my heart and soul and ministering to my heart in a way that I had never experienced before. And even yesterday, I was... Uh, I went into my hubby's office, and where is the, just see if I can see the song. It was A Christmas Carol, Be Born in Me. They're singing the Be, Be Born in Me, the very last line of that song. And I just started to cry, realizing that's what this is all about. And we're celebrating his birth right now, but the real celebration is the birth in our hearts. And I had never seen that before. At least if I had, it never touched me like it did. And so these worship songs have been a huge part. And as I've listened more and then, you know, come to, because I know that it's not all about now everything is rosy. You'll never have a temptation. You'll never trip up. You'll never struggle. You're going to have trials and difficulties. But now these songs have been ministering to my heart and things like I belong to Jesus. Fear 
doesn't have it over me anymore. I belong to Jesus. And it's like, wow. And you changed my name. Now I'm not less than. I'm not living in shame. I'm not this person who is constantly failing to please, but I'm chosen child of God. And it makes me cry because I've never experienced that before. In all of those years and all of those years of ministry and missionary and everything else combined, it's like there was this this kind of, I, I put it this way, I know what I'm basically thinking so hard, that this like, we started out in missionaries, being missionaries, and that was our mission with God. And then we got into reforms, and that was our mission with God. And then we got into practical religion, and that was our mission with God. And on top of all of that afterwards came the gospel, hmm. which if we'd have had through all of those other years, could have made an incredible difference to how we ministered at that time. It's just we didn't know it. And I don't feel upset or angry by that. It's more, praise God, that I get to 60, I finally learn learn about who he is and what he wants to do in my life. And, you know, I don't know what future holds for us, but it really doesn't matter. It's not about, I'm learning this to share with someone. Because you know how that is in ministry. It's like, I don't learn this from my own heart, really. It's because so-and-so could really use this. And I don't feel that way at all anymore. It's, it's like, you. you know what? This is for me. And if this is all I ever do from here on till Jesus comes. And 60, that's not going to be, you know, 50 more years worth for my life. If this is all I ever did, then I would be thankful to God. that. In, and I feel like this... Um, kind of spiritual baby it's like we were proud back then and now it's like i feel like i'm brand new like i've never heard of the gospel before and everything you know the worship songs in church i don't i don't raise my hands and all that kind of stuff because it doesn't feel natural to me but what is happening without me even trying to start it or to stop it is just the tears are constantly rolling down my face and I think the pastor must be wondering what in the world is wrong with this girl because through it, and he preaches a lot about grace and his sermons praise God for that. And it's just like I'm hearing it all for the first time ever. And it's amazing. I want to read you some lyrics. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. Let all their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nation prove the glories of his righteousness. It's good tidings of great joy mm-hmm. that Jesus has come. Mm-hmm. And what he did, they, they named, they'll call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And so he yeah. has, in fact, freed us from our sin. Like we are free from and dead to sin in Christ Jesus. The first time, the first Christmas after freedom, and this is one of those, you know, weird things that we say after freedom. When what we mean, that's just code for when, when we receive the gospel, when we're like, oh, this is what the gospel is. These Christmas songs, these Christmas carols were blowing me away. And I was just like, and I was like, it, it's like what you were talking about, like this is worship. For the first time, I was like, Jesus coming to earth as a little boy was for the purpose of me being free from sin. For me being filled with the Spirit. 
for me having new life now. And so I couldn't think of those Christmas carols without thinking about the resurrection. I was like, wow. It all... and, and I was like, these people had to have understood it. These people writing these carols, right. they had to have understood what has actually taken place. And I, and I was really like, I, I hadn't understood it. Yeah, but that 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 is very very much where we feel we've we're at is that, um, and for me especially knowing these songs, these hymns all my life, memorizing many of them, but not really grasping the depth in the heart level. And I think it's partly partly British and partly the the conservative culture where emotion. Whoa, be careful about that because that might be the dark side, you know. So you aren't really. It, you don't want to stir up emotion because that's that's the happy clumpy emotion and we mustn't go there type of thing. And so you end up being this sterile thing because you're not going to let it get to your heart on an emotional level. And so I think now what it is, it's like, it's just, it's all coming alive. And as you say, we've, we were discussing the other day how Christmas will be very different this year because it's going to mean so much more. And, you know, yesterday I was, I was in tears because I, I had some Christmas songs playing on YouTube and there was come long, come thy long expected Jesus. Well, you look that up and you start reading the words and the words were on the screen. And I'm like, Oh, and I, <laughs> I went and got poor. I got my old hymnal because it's not in the Advent hymnal over here, but it is in the British hymnal. And I went and got my dad's old hymnal, which is really precious to me. And I found the hymn in there and I went to Paul and I started to read the words and it's like, Come to say his people pray and we're like, oh my word, it's that's that's what we're hearing right now. We're that's what we're experiencing. And yeah, it's a very exciting feeling. And there's one thing I want to mention that I didn't, and I think it would be worth mentioning, is that along with I wasn't gonna go listen to all the podcasts because I wanted to find this out for myself, was okay, so I'm hearing all this stuff and I need to see how does that fit with what I understand already. Sure. So I figured, okay, probably the most universal, basic Ellen G. White book would be Steps to Christ. Uh So I started reading it and I was absolutely blown off my chair because you put on a different lens instead of the I must do X, Y, and Z, and you put on the I've done this for you, believe it lens. And it's like, it's all there. So then Paul's like, okay, well then let's read it together. So we then started reading it together. And page after page after page. And it was as if in my brain, or a visual person, I had this like picture frame, but it was empty, no glance or back to it, just the outside edge. And it was as if, here's love reality, and I've got to put it, or the gospel, and I'm going to put it over what I understood and see if anything sticks out the side, or is it complete? Does it, does it fit that mold? And I wasn't sure if it would, to be honest, but I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to read, Lord, you, just, you instruct, and we started to read Steps to Christ, and we were both blown away. And so then we're just pretty close to the end of reading Man of Blessings, and it's, it's amazing. If you've not read those books in light of the gospel anytime recently, you need to read them because if you've had your vision like mine was, and only seeing it in that this is what I've got to do, and hopefully I'll do enough of that to make it, but you start reading it through the eyes of what he has given and what he has done this free, and I just need to believe that. It's completely different. Wow. So, so now I'm listening to podcasts because I feel like, okay, I know where I'm going with this. 
I can trust the listening to that now. <laughs> I was just talking to somebody today who uh, first started to listen to Wave One, like Love Reality Tour at PVC, but they were doing it to fault find. They were doing mm-hmm. it to find out where Jonathan was wrong. And then a year later, there's they've received this thing, and they're like, "I feel like I should listen to that again because it probably is going to sound different." Well. This is how I wrap them all up, and I want to go back. Where are we going back to? We're not going back to. Are we going back to Birmingham? Where's Where's before Birmingham, where you were growing up? Oh, is, the town was Stroud, a little country town in the country in England. But I want to. I want you to go back and talk to nineteen or twenty year old Carolyn, who's living with guilt, condemnation, and shame, and has made all of these promises to God. That's one of the things that we do when we live in guilt, condemnation, and shame is we make promises to God where he never asks us to do that. He just asks us to believe his promises to him. Mm-hmm. If you get to go talk to to her and pull her aside, what would you minister to this to this young lady? I would tell her that what she's done didn't matter. That just like Mary, he held her and he said, I don't condemn you. Go and don't do it anymore. Hmm. And because, you know, I was determined not to do certain things anymore. And then I would get dragged into stuff, not physically, but dragged into stuff because I wanted to please people. And so I would end up pleasing people over pleasing my savior because I wasn't in love with him because I didn't know his love for me. And somehow this whole, you just need to love Jesus, it doesn't work that way. When Jesus, when you see how much he loves you, you can't, you can't help it. You can't help but love him back. It's not something you've got to try to do. It's just something your heart will naturally do. I think that's what I would be telling my 19-year-old self. It's go and sit at his feet. You're not condemned. Um, you, are, you are his child. And he loves you. And I'm thankful that after all these years, <laughs> now I've come to understand that. And I hope that this, this excitement in the gospel that we have found doesn't fade away. Does it fade away? You know what? The thing is this. It's going to say the same thing in there tomorrow. Right. If, if my life starts getting weird, it isn't because of the gospel. It's because... I've let the cares of the world or something get in the way of what he's actually done. And so now I'm just fixing my mind to it. Mm -hmm. And so now if I'm calm, it's so that I, you know, you're describing this feeling that literally everybody who gets this thing, they, it changes their life. And then they start to walk and discern. And, and, and so they're not, you know, just like a fire hydrant to their neighbors and, you know, (laughs) so the excitement doesn't change right just been able to to be calm so that we can communicate it as clearly as we can yeah yeah and and a beautiful thing that is almost like a byproduct that we weren't expecting that both paul and i feel this is complete and utter freedom from condemnation of anybody else and anything anybody else may be doing in their lives it's like Because before it was like pretty much condemnation about everything. 
in your heart, even if you didn't ever voice it. And I think I was probably worse at that or better at that, either way you, you look at it than Paul. But the realization that, you know, if one of my children is doing something, it's like maybe it's not what I would be doing, but am I better than them? Do I know God better than they do to be questioning what they're doing? Or do I say, God, I know you love them, they love you, and I'm going to trust that this will work out whichever way you want it to. And I don't have to have an opinion about that or a church member or anybody else. And it's, I tell you, that is so freeing because I did not know how bound down by that bondage we were. Um, But it was, yeah, it was dark being bound by that. Well, I love this story and I love that this is just the beginning of the story. And uh, (laughs) when Hannah was messaging me about you guys, I was just like, what? (laughs) They get it. I was very excited and you, uh, now I'm going to, I'm going to spoil, I'm going to do something. Maybe you don't want me to do when, when I was talking to Paul about it, he told me that at first you were like, I don't want to be on the podcast. And then a week later, you're like, I gotta be on the podcast. (laughs) And guess what? You're on the podcast. You just did it. And so your, your testimony is a blessing to me. And just seeing how much you've been loved just makes me want to go and tell more people. And so I think I'm going to do that. Praise God. Well, if this can be helpful to someone else, especially that dark journey of where we come from, then I just, you know, pray that that God can use it for something. And he will do that in Jesus' name. As I listen to Carolyn's story about pleasing people, about trying to make sure you're doing it right and the stress that that puts on someone. Uh, If you're hearing that and you're resonating with that, then I want to pray for you. Father, I've struggled in pleasing others because I have found that that's where my comfort comes from. That if people are okay with me, then I can be okay with myself. But I believe that you have made me a good tree and that you are producing fruit in my life and I am just bearing it. And so while it's hard to change your mindset, I'm asking you to change it for me so that I can see the truth and walk in it. I believe you will because I'm praying this in Jesus's name. Amen. Uh Love you guys. I want you guys to kick it with us on the Bible studies. One one that I'm going to talk about right now is the Good Good Gospel Bible study that is hosted by Justin Koo on Sunday mornings. Justin Koo does a great job. It is such a blessing. Uh, check that out. Text Bible studies to love reality number and join us there thanks so much love y'all appreciate y'all